Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Afternoons on SEN. Welcome to SEN Afternoons. Uh, Julian DeStoop with you, of course. We're playing that uh, song today because Jerry Marsden, the lead singer of Jerry and the Pacemakers, uh, passed away uh, overnight. Uh, their version of You'll Never Walk Alone became the unofficial, uh, or the, now the official anthem of the Liverpool Football Club. And I don't think you have to be a Liverpool fan or a football fan even to, to be moved by that when you hear it at Anfield. And if you were lucky enough to be at the MCG uh, a few years ago uh, for their match against the Melbourne Victory when 91,000 people sung that. Uh, it is one of the great anthems uh, in Australian sport or in world sport, sorry. But I'd love to get your thoughts today uh, throughout the show on some of the great anthems in world sport. Now, that could be uh, from your footy club's uh, theme song or maybe one of the other teams in the AFL's theme song that you really like. I'm sure there'll be plenty of nominations uh, for the Richmond uh, theme song or there might be other sporting anthems around the world. It could be national anthems uh, that are played before world sporting events or even theme songs uh, from sport uh, over the years. Obviously at a local level, you got up there, Kazali, and that's the thing about football from Greg Champion in the mid-90s. Maybe it's the wild world of sports uh, cricket theme. You've got Monday Night Football over in the States is a, a very famous anthem. So we'd love to get your thoughts uh, today on the show. one three hundred seven three six seven three six is the open line. Or as always, you can send us a text on the temper text line. A temper, a mattress like no other. Zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. We'll read out your contributions uh, throughout the show. Uh, obviously, cricket's going to be high on the agenda uh, again today. It does appear, though, listening to Peter Lawler, uh, this morning uh, on SEN Breakfast uh, that uh, we're going to get some sort of resolution here about the, the, the test at the Gabba. It appears like it will uh, go ahead despite some uh, reports of uh, some uncertainty uh, with the Indi- in, inside the Indian camp and whether or not they want to quarantine uh, once again. But we'll speak to Robert Craddock, who's on the ground in Brisbane, about that. And uh, this build-up to the test has been... Uh, so controversial uh, and so many talking points uh, both on and off the pitch. We'll get the latest two on, on David Warner and Will Bukowski. Uh, it's, it's just fascinating with David Warner. There seems to be almost this desperation to play him, even though he's not, by the sound of it, and even in his own words, 100% fit. Is that the right thing to do? I mean, it's a big test match, uh, series tied at one all. Obviously, it's a big test series, but given David Warner is such an important part of the Australian team. You've got back-to-back tests here, uh, essentially, uh, and he's going to be a big part of everything in Australian cricket at all forms uh, in 2021 and beyond. Um, 
is it the right thing to be doing to be rushing him in, even if he's not uh, 100% fit? And, and would you play Will Pekowski? Uh Pete Lawler said this morning he saw him in the nets. Uh, he looked okay. He's still got a few more um, tests to go through and uh, some testing sessions in the nets. But would you play him? Or do you think it's uh, too early for Will Pekowski, given uh, all the concussion issues that he's had? So give us a call at any time. If you want to talk cricket, one 736 736 We'll talk to Robert Craddock uh, about all things cricket coming up uh, at about 20 past 12. Uh, so not too far away is Robert Craddock. Also on the show today, uh, the World Game. Plenty going on uh, in the EPL, of course. Some pressure on the, the Chelsea manager, Frank Lampard, after another loss this morning. They were beaten convincingly at home uh, by Manchester City. Uh, and obviously the A-League is back underway and a surprise leader in the opening uh, weekend after a couple of wins. Central Coast Mariners, uh, last year's Wooden Spooners, uh, not tipped for big things so far in the A-League, but uh, they've got off to a sensational start with a couple of wins. Not such a great weekend uh, for the two Melbourne teams. Melbourne victory beaten at home 3-1 by the Brisbane Roar and uh, Melbourne City after a winning start uh, late last week against the Raw, went down 2-0 last night uh, to Adelaide United. In Adelaide, another red card, this time to the skipper, uh, Scott Jamison. So both matches so far, they've finished uh, with 10 men. So we'll speak to Andy Harper about all things uh, in the world game a bit later on as well. Now, tennis, of course, the Australian Open. A bit more drama there, as we heard from Pete Mercado and Sam Edmund on SEN Mornings uh, with this at the Western Hotel where some of the residents there are not happy that that hotel will be used to to house some players. So a bit more drama in the lead up to the Australian Open. But uh, normally at this time uh, down at Melbourne Park, there's a big focus on Australian Open qualifiers, which would be normally uh, just about to get underway. But of course, this year we know it's very different. Uh, They will be held uh, in the Middle East. There's 20 Australians uh, heading over trying to get their way into the main draw at Melbourne Park for the start of the Australian Open on February 8. 11 men, including Bernard Tomic uh, and nine women. But uh, another one that's heading over there is uh, Andrew Harris. He's a 26-year-old uh, from Victoria. He made the main draw with a wild card last year uh, at the Australian Open. He lost in the first round. He's also the son of former Australian tennis player Ann Minter, who uh, reached the quarterfinals at Melbourne Park in 1988. She won four titles on the tour, reached uh, number 23 in the world uh, in the late 1980s. So we're going to speak to Andrew uh, very shortly. He jets off uh, tomorrow night uh, for the Middle East uh, to uh, in his bid to make the Australian Open uh, main draw for the second year in a row. And also going to talk some basketball uh, with one of the rising stars of Australian basketball, uh, Josh Giddy, whose father, speaking of uh, links. Uh, to parents in sport, uh, Warwick Giddy was a very good player for the Melbourne Tigers uh, in the ni- late 1980s and early 1990s. He played on those very good teams with Andrew Gaze and also Leonard Copeland. Uh, but he's uh, already in the ESPN. They're doing their future drafts, their mock drafts. He's at number 25. He's about to start his first uh, professional season. He's playing with the Adelaide 36ers uh, this year. So the NBL season, not too far away. Uh, Josh is training as we speak, but we're going to catch up with Josh uh, a little bit later as well. So plenty coming up on SEN Afternoons. Also, our footy fans as well. We see in the Herald Sun today a big spread about all 18 clubs, what they're doing for members, some of the discounts and some of the offers uh, they're giving their members. Unbelievable loyalty from AFL club uh, members last year. That uh, The fact that nearly 100% of members uh, you know, kept their membership options going. Uh, the clubs are going to try and reward their members uh, you know, with price freezes and other offers and, and merchandise and all these sort of things for 2021. But will you sign up straight away out of loyalty? Are you waiting to see uh, what's going to happen with uh, crowds and what percentage of crowds will be allowed at matches? 
or you just like any other year where you're sort of waiting for some early season form to sign up for your team. You're a bit disappointed with the way your team played last year, so you're not you're not overly keen to get a membership uh, at this stage. So I'd love to get your thoughts, uh, footy fans, on that one three hundred seven three six seven three six, or send us a temper text zero four double three. 98 11 16. You're automatically just going to take up your club membership, or you're just waiting to see uh, whether it's COVID reasons or whether to see how your team performs in the early rounds or even in the preseason before you decide uh, to be a member again in 2021. Already on the temper text machine, uh, we're getting some uh, nominations through for sporting anthems. Uh, Stephen Modonga said, Even as a one eyed tiger, I'd have to admit, where from Tigerland comes in a distant second. Till you'll never walk alone. Best anthem anywhere, says Steve in Wodonga. And another one here from saying the Green Bay Packers, they play Todd Rundgren, bang on my drum all day after they score a touchdown. The entire crowd start dancing. So keep your nominations uh, coming through either on the line, one three hundred seven three six seven three six or 433 Big day uh, in the NFL and it's continuing the last round of the regular season. We've already seen one of the great droughts uh, in sport ended. That's the Cleveland Browns. They're through to the playoffs in the NFL for the first time since 2002. Since 2002, before this season, they have not had one winning season, uh, but they're finally broken through. They just got the job done uh, against the Pittsburgh Steelers. After a week of drama for the Cleveland Browns uh, in terms of COVID, they had their training facility shut down for the last eight days. Five key players were ruled out of this uh, must-win game against the Steelers due to COVID. A couple of their key coaching staff as well uh, weren't on the sidelines uh, for this match as well. So well done uh, to the Cleveland Browns. There's still some wild card and uh, playoff positions uh, being sorted out in the matches that are underway right now. So a uh, fascinating finish uh, to the NFL season. Such a tight competition. And uh, with not that only 12, not many teams making the playoffs out of 32 teams. It's always a desperate race. And also some uh, fantastic finishes in the final round of the regular season. So we'll keep you posted uh, with all the scores uh, across the show. But uh, reminder, coming up, Robert Craddock, Andy Harper, Andrew Harris and Josh Giddy. But uh, next up, after the break on SEN Afternoons, we'll catch up with Robert Crash Craddock. Afternoons on SEN. Welcome back to Afternoons. Julian DeStoop with you this afternoon. Robert Craddock, uh, not too far away. Uh, if you haven't heard the news earlier today regarding the Australian cricket team, that is the fact that James Pattinson has been ruled out of the third test against India with bruised ribs, sustained in a fall at his property while on approved leave. He will be not replaced in the squad and will be assessed leading into the Brisbane test. And just reading uh, off cricket.com.au here, uh, Nathan Lyon with some comments, obviously asked about quarantine restrictions uh, and what it all means uh, for the players. And he's basically said players need to suck it up and quit complaining, which was similar to what Brad Haddon uh, said on Fox Cricket last night uh, about uh, these suggestions that some of the Indians weren't keen to go back into quarantine uh, if they if the fourth test will be played at the Gabba, which we're all hoping it will be. And I'm certain that one man that definitely wants it played at the Gabba is one of the great friends of SEN in Robert Crash Craddock, who joins us on the line. Uh, Happy New Year, Crash. Same to you, Jules. Yes, look, it's a... A difficult situation, but I think it's getting a bit brighter because uh, the key line uttered by Queensland Health boss Jeanette Young was that players will be allowed to roam around uh, inside a bubble inside their own hotel. They will be able to mix. So they were, they were just absolutely red hot in India on not being confined to their rooms, and I don't think they will be. 
Do you think that's fair? Do you think that was a that was a valid complaint from the Indians? Well, you know, it it all came down to a condition they agreed to before the tour that they the two weeks hard quarantine at the start of the tour would be all they would be required to do, and then the goalpost changed, of course, due to infections in Sydney. And who can really give guarantees about COVID protocols because we know they can change by the hour, never mind the week. So I sort of get their point. Um, there's a bit of a theory out there that India rule the world, and it's 100% true. They really do. But they're also quite generous tourists in that they, they're offshore a lot. They play a lot of teams because they know when they turn up, they everyone makes money. So they, they're, they're, they're pretty good tourists, and I think they're a bit more reasonable and rational than they used to be, put it that way. Yeah, I think a lot of people just have naturally assumed this is the, the BCCI flexing their muscle again. But has there been any suggestions at all that that the BCCI have been kicking up a stink about this? No, it's more the players on tour and their coaching staff. And they. Uh, my line on it was, hang on a minute, all this was sorted out last Wednesday. So why didn't you arc up about it last Wednesday? Because it's not as if it's six months ago, but the, the protocols which were agreed upon came about last Wednesday. And they said, we weren't told. This is private talk, of course. They said, you know, we weren't told about the change in the protocols that they'd have to isolate in their room. But I think this one will be averted, Jules. I may be wrong, but I, I just, I'm reading the tea leaves a bit. And I think that, 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 the conditions in Sydney are very similar to what they'll be in Brisbane, as in staying in a hotel, limited access to people outside the team. But the difference, of course, will be that in Sydney, it'll be a Cricket Australia protocol. They'll be administrating things, whereas in Brisbane, it'll be the Queensland government officials because they run the protocols, as I believe they should. We saw a photo on the weekend emerge of five players, Indian players, having uh, a lunch or a dinner at, Ch- at Chaston Shopping Centre here in Melbourne, is there any yeah. sort of relation between that photo becoming public and becoming a big story? And I've seen some of the reports out of India that sort of suggested the Australian media is getting stuck into the Indians here. And also a photo that was put up of uh, Virat Kohli as well. And these complaints emerging? Uh, no. Well, there could be, actually. But what what has been pretty clear, there's been concerns and whispers for quite some time that some of the Indians have been trimming the edges off the biosecurity protocols, like Virat Kohli going into a baby shop and not wearing a mask, like a player occasionally slipping inside a restaurant to order with, uh, without wearing a mask. And, you know, I've seen both sides of it. I was in Adelaide at a, a coffee house and Pat Cummings walked past with his fiancée. Now, he stood outside, he sat on the pavement, his fiancée came in and ordered and that, that, that he did everything by the book, you know, and, and he didn't even know I was in the restaurant. So you can do it, but, um, and there's breaches in there, and there, there's small breaches and there's large breaches, isn't there? Like, Virat Kohli should have worn a mask inside that baby shop, but he didn't have one on. So it's, um, yeah, it's a difficult tour. I think everyone's agreed on one thing. They've just got to get these four tests over and done with Jules, because... The players get tired yeah. too, late in tours, and they get a bit sloppy and reckless. I've seen it a lot of times. Yeah, we're chatting to Robert Craddock, and I mean, this is not a Victorian-centric view, because of, but it, couldn't all of this drama just been avoided? I know it's great news out of New South Wales today that there's no new cases, but could have all this drama been avoided and just made, I guess, the far simpler decision 
to just have this next test at the MCG. Yeah, or, or even if you if you're unhappy with that, play it in Brisbane and then go to Sydney. Yeah, also go you know, that like, too. Like yeah. That's, yeah, Brisbane were up. Brisbane were right up for that. Ian Healy, one of the uh, former Test wicket keepers and one of the big power brokers in Queensland cricket, he was cheering for that one. The swapping of the tests. Brisbane, the third test, and they come straight from Melbourne. They don't have to have any additional protocols. And then, bang, into Sydney where everything's a bit tighter for the last test. But guess what? That's the end of the road and then you're home. So, uh, yeah, I I think... uh, But Sydney fought very hard for the status quo to be maintained. The jury is still out, Jules, on whether it's the right decision. I know John Barillaro, the acting Premier, will have a press conference today where he will talk about certain crowd limits of the SCG throughout the test. I'm really interested in that one because... I've touched base with a few of my really good buddies in Sydney who go to the test every year. And I said, how do you feel about it? And one of them, who's a rugby league journalist, who goes every year, nearly every day, he said to me, mate, I'm not going. I just, it feels funny. And he said to me, he said, you know how much I love the test in Sydney, but it's just crowd numbers there. And he said, I'm not wearing a mask to watch the cricket. Defeats a purpose of it. It's like going fishing in the rain, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting, Jules. It really is. It is. And we heard the Australian Chief Medical Officer, Paul Kelly, say he'd be reluctant to go to the SCG uh, test this year. So just give us a snapshot of what the feeling's been like in Brisbane the last 24 hours. I mean, mean, people would have booked their tickets for the Gabba test. Uh, It's such a big event uh, at the Gabba. Was there genuine concern amongst people in Queensland and Brisbane that it it might be taken away or they they sort of didn't jump that far ahead? I don't think they jumped that far ahead, but they did. The story came like a lightning bolt through uh, Crick Buzz, an Indian website, and Bharat, who's... uh, uh, commentates on SEN, and he's as well connected to the Indian team as anyone. He's a wonderful journalist, a real acquisition for the SEN commentary team, I've got to say, too. I've never seen a man who watches net practice more closely. He's just hes uh, terrific. And he wrote the story, and he wrote it without quotes. But that didn't disturb a lot of people because he's very well connected, and everyone knows those quotes would have come right from the top of the Indian Kuru party, Someone saying, we're not going to Brisbane if we've got to stay in our hotel room. So people were just starting to digest the story when Jeanette Young, the medical officer, spoke yesterday saying, well, they won't have to quite stay in their rooms. They're mixing on the ground so they can mix with each other in the hotel. And I think there's a feeling that before things got too desperate, um, that that sort of took a little bit of the air out of the balloon. Yeah, that, and that's great. We don't want we don't want to see any tests moved, and ideally, we want to see this test played at the SCG. And it sounds like it will be. Let's have a look at some of the action on the field. David Warner, interested in in your thoughts on this? It seems like this real desperation for David Warner to play, even if he's not one hundred percent fit. Given his importance to Australian cricket, the fact that the, the Brisbane Test is coming up pretty quickly after this Sydney Test, is that the right move, or should David Warner be? 100% fit if he's going to be picked for this test match. Yeah, it's a, I understand, Jules, that if Australia had won the Boxing Day test, David Warner was not playing this test. Now, he can apparently, he is only about 90% fit, so it is a gamble, particularly if he's such a power runner. Like, And you can say, oh, we'll hide him in the field. But David Warner is an attack dog in the field. He, he'll run before he even know he's running. And between wickets, he's an absolute hare, isn't he? 
So he's just not a guy who cruises in third gear. You know, like some guys you say, you know, just just look after yourself. But that's not David Warner. So it is a risk. It is a gamble. Um, I get it, though. I'll tell you one thing. It has been obvious. Just how much he sets the tone for this Australian team as the alpha male, doesn't he? I mean, with poor Joe Burns opening the batting and with Matt Wade, I mean, they feel there's a sense of submissiveness almost straight away, certainly with Joe Burns, not so much with Wade. But it just enables bowlers to settle on their line and length, whereas they can't do it with Warner because he's so aggressive. He unnerves attacks, and that's why they need him back. It's a, it's an interesting one. He's a, We had to do our top 50 players yeah. of the century, and I think we rated him 25 uh, over the weekend. It had quite a few people thought he was too low. Uh, should have been uh, up about 17, 18. I was going to ask you about that list. I might do it now. I mean, how difficult was that list to put together? Because it's it's tough because you've got some players that, uh, you know, they did some really good things sort of mid to late 90s, but then they continued on. And, and for the early part of the 21st century, you know, they played some good cricket as well. So how difficult was to weigh up their whole career compared to what they did in the early 2000s? And then you weigh that up against players that their entire career have been spent has been played in this era. In a word, very. <laughs> you know, and, and we were. The, do you know the player who caused most drama sitting down at number 11 was Glenn McGrath? Yeah. He, he played half of his career last century, half this century. But people were saying, do you mind, Glenn McGrath? He should never be at number 11 in any list. He's either up the top or he's not there. I, I copped that criticism. I, I thought that was fair enough, actually. You know, and, and he averaged 20 runs per wicket this century. Man, oh, man. You know, what a bowler. Uh, we put Adam Gilchrist at number one. He was number one in my personal list because I, I just felt, as Richie Benno used to say, go for the game changes. Mm. And Gilchrist changed cricket, and cricket's not changing back. And I think his shadow hovers over every selection meeting in cricket now, from your under sevens to your test teams. Can the keeper bat? And, and why do you ask that? Well, we just remember Gilly, don't we? So, but Jules, I tell you something. The beautiful thing about cricket is the arguments and debates never cease. (laughs) I got Gideon Hay, who's a wonderful historian, to look at our list. And he said to me, made a very good point. He said, where's Rashid Khan, the Afghan leg spinner? Now, what a great point. He's only played four tests. But Gideon said, I believe he is currently the most important player in world cricket because he's taking cricket into frontier land, mate. You know? And I just... I had to pay the argument. I yeah, very it's an interesting way of looking so at it. It's a really, really, it's a bottomless list in some ways, but uh, it was very difficult. <laughs> We're chatting to Robert Craddock. Just on Gilchrist too, do you think a lot of people forget, I mean, his batting was, was so electric, and as you say, he changed cricket forever with his batting as a keeper, but do you think sometimes people forget, I mean, his main job was to be the wicketkeeper, and he was bloody good at it. Oh, yeah, he was, you know, and, and, and he's keeping improved. There's no question. And by the end of his career, he'd taken more dismissals than anyone else. He just beat Mark Boucher. Then Boucher got him a few months later. But I just sometimes I tell you what we do take for granted is, man, oh, man. I mean, we're talking about, you know, batsmen staying in the test team with averages of 33 at the moment. <laughs> After 47 tests, Adam Gilchrist's average was 60. And in the last half of his career, it, it went down. He averaged about 36. But his strike rate was second only to Verenda Sawag, that you know the yep. explosive Indian batsman. Like he, he, 
I, if you, when you spoke, the biggest compliments to Gilchrist came in bars when you were talking to English fast bowlers, and they'd say, "Mate, Gilchrist just unnerves me." I just you put a ball on off stump and he'll hit it over mid wicket for four or six. He said, I've ne- "No one treats me like that." And so he he made bowlers radar scramble, and he was unnervingly good. And the other part of his his life was interesting in that in his book True Colours he pulled away the cape and just said, "Right, I, there was times when I was distraught and distressed, and I hid it all away from everyone." And uh, I love when sports stars do that because it makes them feel human. Yeah, it's a fantastic list, and uh, it's one of those ones that uh, everyone was talking about on the weekend. Just going back to this uh, current Australian team, so let's assume David Warner is playing. Who's going to join him at the top of the order, do you think? Yeah, it's a good one. See, people are saying Will Pukowski, and he's probably the favourite, isn't he? But I I don't know. (laughs) I'd I'd still be tempted to play Pukowski in the middle order and maybe keep Wade there. But I understand they haven't... They're not going to have the discussion... Uh, Pukowski's got a final protocol test this afternoon. So I, I think we'll know tomorrow whether he's available. And if he's available, I think he's in. So uh, I know everyone expects him to open the batting, but you know, a guy who's had nine concussions facing up to Jasper Brum, Prit Bumra with a new cherry, oh, I don't know. But uh, it's going to be great to see him play if, as expected, he does, because I think there's been such a build-up, hasn't he? Three times over the last three seasons, he's been so close to test cricket only to be um, balloted out or to, to withdraw at the last moment. So do you think they would consider playing him in the middle order? Well, that's what I'd like to see him play. But I understand that still the preference is to open with Warner, get him in there, let him... You know, he's been so successful this season with Marcus Harris for Victoria. He's got shots all around the wicket. He's a beautiful player of the ball. It's just going to be so interesting if, if he does play with young Cameron Green. That, that, that's the one indispensable. No matter who yeah. goes, it's either got to be Matthew Wade or Travis Head. And for mine, I feel Wade's batting better than Head at the moment. Mm. He'd be in my team. But they've got to hang on to Green. He, he's the present and he's the future. He's a beautiful young player. So calm and cool. And just never... I tell you, here's the other thing about Cameron Green batting. He just never looks in trouble. Like, he just plays straight all the time. It, it's it's really wonderful. Yeah, and he showed great uh, poise, didn't he, in that second innings at the MCG. Before we let you go, Crash, uh, there's all this drama around this series from selection and, and where the tests are going to be played. But right now, we're in the middle of a, a fantastic series. It's so even, two powerhouses of world cricket. We've got two tests to go. What, what's your predictions? Who's going to end up on top in this series? I, I think Australia will win one of the last two. Uh, maybe at the Gabba where they always win and the Sydney might be a draw. I, I think they could lose the first day yeah. through to rain there. Uh, but if I've got a wish for this series, <laughs> it's a weird <laughs> one, but I want an old-fashioned Sydney deck. I just think... Spinning deck. S- Sydney's a deceptive... Everyone, Yeah, everyone talks about Sydney being a spinner's deck. Sure, Nathan Lyon got wicked there last year. But previously, the previous 10 years, it's been hopeless mm. for spin bowlers. Let's have a spin bowling fest at the SCG and see what Australia or any of you are really made of. That's, that's what I'd love to see. That'd be great. Lyon and Ashwin uh, would really come into their own, and Ashwin's been fantastic so far this series. Uh, Crash, as always, uh, thank you so much for your time. We can't wait. Hopefully, Sydney's weather does the right thing for us and uh, we get underway on Thursday. Thanks again for your time on SEN. My pleasure, Jules. Nice to be on. Thank you.
Great to chat to Robert Craddock. And remember, the Saucy McRib and legendary El Maco are back at Macca's this summer for a limited time only. So have you got any thoughts uh, on what uh, Robert Craddock was saying about where the test should be played or exactly what's going to happen with this Australian lineup? Would Would Matthew Wade be desperately unlucky uh, to lose his place or should Travis Head stay in the team because he's six years younger uh, than Matthew Wade? Be interested to get your thoughts uh, on exactly what Australians should do at this selection table. We'll do that after the break, but let's check in with the SEN Newsroom. Afternoons on SEN. Welcome back to Afternoons. Julian DeStoop with you. Andy Harper to chat the world of football after one o'clock. You can give us a call at any time on 1300 737 336 or temper text 0433981116 to get involved with the program at any time. Uh, best call today, prize is at 18 holes of golf for two. Thanks to our good friends at Club Mandalay, a must-play course in Melbourne's north. Not exactly golf weather today after a beautiful weekend uh, in Melbourne, but it's set to warm up by the end of the week. Uh, Troy from Collie's been good enough to give us a buzz uh, on the open line and uh, wants to chat a bit, a bit about the cricket. G'day, Troy. Jules, how are you, bud? Oh, Happy good, New Year. Yeah, you too, mate. Great to hear your voice again. Yeah, you too. Hey, um, before I talk about the cricket, you asked the anthems and yeah. things like that. A lot of people know I'm a Port Adelaide supporter, so you couldn't go past Never Tear Us Apart, I don't think. Yeah, it's a good point, and a few of those are coming through on the temper text machine, and not only from Port Adelaide fans as well. And that's a, it's a recently new one, isn't it? Uh, addition under David Kosh yeah. uh, and Kenny Hinckley yeah. and, and the team down there at Port Adelaide. And, yeah, there's not that many in footy in terms of uh, pre-match uh, anthems. Obviously, we've got the club anthems that have been around for a long time, but yeah, I think that one's proven to be very effective. Yeah, and uh, I think it's done from what I've read on the Port Adelaide website, and that was done... Along the lines of the Liverpool one, never walk alone. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's where they got the idea yeah. from. And, uh, yeah, I must admit, uh, yeah. I haven't been to a game at Adelaide Oval uh, with Port playing, but uh, certainly watching it through the TV, it, it seems to be something that, that all the fans uh, get involved with. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the cricket, Jules. Yeah. Um, yeah. I heard uh, Crash and you talking just then. Um, is there any idea what the wicket is like at in Sydney or a bit early for that? I think it's a bit early. I think we'll really start to focus on that uh, the next couple of days, uh, given the players uh, will be flying out very shortly to, to head up to Sydney. Um, but I think Robert yeah. makes a good point there. I think we all, you know, growing up, certainly remember it as being a great spinning deck, don't we, the SCG? And quite often, yeah. you know, Australia well, would play Warner yeah, McGill. Um, but it, it certainly hasn't been that way the last decade, as Crash mentioned. What, what would you like to see from the SCG deck? Well... My, my question is, and I think a lot of pitches, just technology and stuff like that, Jules, is, you know, they're all getting more and more like each other instead of having their, you know, their own characteristics. Like you've got Sydney spinning, you've got Wallace Optus now bouncing and things. Oh, my question is, would they be game, either team, game enough to play two spinners, do you think? That's a good question. Well, we saw India play two spinners in the last test, so I'm assuming that will be the case again, given their bowling stocks have really been hurt. I can't see Australia doing that. You wouldn't make any changes, would you, to that Australian bowling lineup? It is, it is so strong at the moment, and uh, while the batsmen have been letting us down, uh, you couldn't see them making any change uh, to the lineup. So, look, I don't think they're expecting a massive turner in Sydney, as we say. That would go against what we've seen. Uh, for a decade or so. But, uh, Troy, I'm sure we'll get word in the next 24 hours uh, what sort of pitch uh, we'll expect uh, for this third test. And hopefully, as we said before, uh, the weather 
plays its role as well. Certainly some showers forecast in the in the opening couple of days. So let's hope that doesn't interrupt uh, play. Uh, Troy, thanks again uh, for your call. Let's go to Richard in Cows, who wants to have a chat about the cricket. G'day, Richard. Uh, g'day, Julian. Look, um, I was listening to you and Robert Crash Craddock. Look, what I want to know is, what's Harris done wrong not to be in this side now? Now, what I'd have, I'd have... I wouldn't have Warner in this side, and I'll tell you the reason why. You're expecting him to fire first go with no matches under his belt. Now, the chances of him succeeding are pretty slim. So I'd have Harris and Wade, Lava, Shane, Smith, Pekofsky, Green. So you play Pekofsky in the middle order? Yeah, and I, I'd, I'd get Warner into state cricket and, and get some matches into him. He, he comes in, yes, but get some matches in him. The chances of him firing first go, what chance in 10 do you give him a chance of making 100 first go? Oh, I'm not worried about him, you know, coming off little cricket. My concern more would be the injury. I mean, that was a, that was a serious injury that he had. Now, if he re-injured that, he's going to be missing... Uh, quite a lot of cricket again. And yes, this is a massive series. We're locked at one all, but we've still got two tests to go. So if he's not quite right for this uh, test, and I know if India win this test, Australia can't win the series, but if he's not right for this test, I'm not sure it's it's worth the risk to bring in such an important player like David Warner. As, as Crash said, you know, he's a, he's a great fieldsman. He's not the sort of player that's going to hold back at all, whether it's in the field or, or chasing a quick single. So I just think given the seriousness of the injury that he had, I'm not sure we need to be rushing him back in the team. And and as you say there, Marcus Harris, I think it was very unlucky. Joe Burns shouldn't have played. I think we all agree with that. Marcus Harris, yes, we've said it a couple of times, haven't we? He didn't quite lock away that big score uh, in the tour matches to, to lock down his position. But given what he'd done in shield cricket this season, when you put it up against Joe Burns, he should play. So Marcus is there. He's more than capable. Matthew Wade has been... Without getting the big score, in three of his four innings, he's got good starts. He's done pretty well as an opener for someone that's never opened before. So I'm not worried about Warner not playing much cricket because I think talents like him can pick it up pretty quickly. But it, it, for mine, it's more the worry with his body. It just feels like this desperation to play him, which I, I'm not sure we need to do that. Right, thanks, mate. Thank you, Richard. Always great to, to have your contribution. Uh, Jacob from Knoxfield wants to join in the conversation as well. G'day, Jacob. G'day, Jules. Look, you two have just basically covered what I was thinking. I don't understand why Warner takes this big risk for his body unless he's thinking, I've only got two two years left of tests and then I'm going to play 2020 around the world and he really wants this series wrapped up against India. I understand that. and But, you know, that's the only reason I could see him taking a risk. And if he does break down, then we're a player down as well. So, yeah, look, I don't understand it. And, I'm, uh, you know, let him play in the Gabba test, have another... 10 days break or whatever it is, particularly if there's going to be rain coming. We, it might be a on and off type of game. That won't help his groin either. So yeah, I'm happy for Harris to come in. And I don't want Wade dropped, whatever they do. I think he's done enough and he's fought hard in England and made some uh, made that century in the Ashes and had another good innings with uh, Steve Smith, I remember. So, yeah, and yeah, Pachowski, happy for him to come in as well, maybe down the order and let Harris, uh, Harris bat up. So you'd have Harris and Wade opening the batting and you'd drop head and play Bukowski? Is that what, what you'd do? That, that's right, yes. Yep. And look, if they went the other way and, and let Petrovsky keep having a bit more training in the nets, and, and I'm not overly fussed if head plays, but, you know, he just maybe hasn't done enough and, and just got out when we need him to stay in. You know, he's got to know 
I've got to stay in here. You know, there's there's a ball that's nearly there to hit, but I'm not taking that risk. You know, that's he hasn't done that enough, and he's a future captain or was yeah. vice captain or whatever. So. Yeah, he needs to do a bit better than that. Yeah, it's certainly been frustrating, hasn't it? Going, the man. way he's got out has yeah. been similar a few times in in similar situations, hasn't it? Oh, it has, yeah. One of the fascinating things will be this test as well is how Steve Smith goes. You know, it's out in the open now about cutting off his scoring. Uh, it'll be just really interesting to see how he uh, goes about. I mean, obviously, they're going to keep the same fields. Yeah. Why would you change it and keep bowling in the, towards that uh, leg stump and, you know, middle and leg? Uh, it'll be interesting to see if uh, he can find a way through. You kind of think he will, but uh, yeah, we all know what's going to happen now. That's uh, a really good point, Jacob, and it's not too many times in his career, has it, in the last, well, probably six or seven years that he's found himself really struggling for runs. So, uh, yeah, it'll be great to see. Hopefully he bounces back, and most of the time champions do. But, yeah, that's going to be another element of this test match that uh, is going to be fascinating. Jacob, thanks for your call. Let's go to Sam, who wants to chat about Dave Warner as well. G'day, Sam. G'day. How you doing? I'm well, mate. Yourself? Very good. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that there's a caller just recently, a couple of callers back who talked about not playing Warner because he, you know, needs to get have some more time in the middle. Well, there is no red ball <laughs> That's cricket a good on, point. so no one's having time yeah. in the middle. So Harris, Pekovsky, name insert the name of any batsman in the country. No one's playing. So playing, not playing Warner for that reason is ridiculous because no one else is batting. So bottom line is you pick him on experience and capability ahead of anyone anyway. So, and this is just the the problem we have with the scheduling. It's the and and that's the way it happens with Big Bash, and it's what happens when international cricket shuts down when the IPL's on. It's just it's just the way that it is. So Warner comes in, you, you take your pick of um, Harris and uh, Bukowski. Um, head just goes, and I think you just um, and rearrange the batting order how you wish but I would go with um, if he's been opening the batting the young fella whack him in with Warner we've got a right and a left hander and away we go drop Wade back down to uh, down the order and away we go yeah I, I, Matthew Wade would be very unlucky to miss out wouldn't he given you know he sacrificed his spot in the order to go up and help out the top of the order and, and did pretty well in three of the four rings he would be uh, desperately unlucky to miss out. It's going to be so interesting to see what the Australians do with this uh, batting lineup. And yeah, we want Dave Warner out there, but for mine, I'm not sure if he's not close, right, really close to 100%. It's worth taking the risk, given potentially a, a series deciding test is, is coming up pretty much straight away uh, at the Gabba. Sam and everyone, thank you for your calls. We'll take plenty more calls uh, throughout the show. You can join us, one three hundred seven three six seven three six, or send us a tip or text, 0433 Plenty more after the break on SEN Afternoons. Welcome back to Afternoons. Julian DeStoot with you. As we mentioned near the top of the program, it's a big day in the NFL with the last day of the regular season. We mentioned the Cleveland Browns are through to the playoffs for the first time in 2002. Uh, any one of the great droughts uh, in world sport, really, the fact they haven't had a winning season since 2002 and they had a lot of drama this week uh, with COVID. They got through with a narrow win over the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, the NFC is all but sorted. The Packers clinched the number one seed with a win over the Bears, 35-16. But the Bears are also through uh, to the playoffs uh, after the LA Rams beat the Arizona Cardinals. The Rams are also in. and uh, The only spot to be decided now is a game between Washington and Philadelphia. Washington win, they in. If they lose, uh, the New York Giants will be into the playoffs. So it's going right down to the wire, as it often does uh, in the NFL on the last weekend uh, of the regular season. We're also talking at the top of the program about memberships and uh, all the different uh, offers that are 
on the table from clubs this year to try and appease members, I guess, that showed their loyalty uh, last year. Got one here from a Western Bulldogs supporter saying, uh, really unhappy about Western Bulldogs 2021 membership offer. My husband and son are all gold members who paid in full last year, even though my husband was on JobKeeper for six plus months. They'd reward us with charging $10 per home game for our reserve seat. Reading the likes of Carlton, for instance, I feel the doggies took the money last year and are trying to double dip this year. Seriously offended by this. Uh, so I'm not quite sure of the details on that one and what the Bulldogs are offering. Another one here, not necessarily about membership, but uh, this is from Michael saying, Hi, Julian. Just a massive shout-out to the Richmond president, Peggy O'Neill. My, f- my family and I bumped into her at a furniture shop in Richmond over the weekend. She took time to chat to myself and my wife all about everything Richmond. What an articulate and lovely person. She was quick to point out that Richmond's success is a team effort. Nevertheless, it's no wonder Richmond is where they are at the minute, especially when you have a president such as Peggy at the top. What an amazing lady. Uh, So thanks for that correspondence uh, from Michael. A couple of others too about anthems. Enter the Sandman for Virginia Tech, the Hokies. Amazing Matt from Geelong. And if you want a sporting anthem, the darts anthem, Chase the Sun, is simply awesome. So keep... All your nominations uh, coming through. News in the world of footy too. Reese Shaw back on the coaching staff this time at the Gold Coast Suns. But after the break on SEN Afternoons, we'll chat the world game with Andy Harper from Fox Sports. Afternoons on SEN. Welcome back to SEN Afternoons. Julian DeStoop with you. And hearing the voice of our own Sam Fantasia in the newsroom uh, just reminded me of the story that's out today that Port Adelaide have announced their jumper numbers for 2021. And Orazio Fantasia, I'm pretty sure he's no relation to our man uh, Sam. He's keeping the number 13 that he had at the Bombers. Xavier Dersma, who he wasted absolutely no no time. Before Brad Ebert had even cleared out his locker after announcing his retirement, he said, Brad, can I have your number seven, Guernsey? Uh, he's got his wish. He'll wear the number seven. Uh, his number 21 goes to the former swan, Aaliyah Aaliyah. Uh, and Lockie Jones, who was the club's academy pick, uh, he's keeping the number 34 that he played in at Woodville uh, West Torrens, and uh, he won a premiership in that number. So he'll be hoping uh, for similar fortunes uh, in his time at Port Adelaide, of course. The power coming off a year uh, where they finished on top but couldn't quite make it through to the grand final, but uh, with a pretty young list still uh, in terms of their very good young players. Uh, big expectations at Albany Oval again for 2021. I'm going to speak to Andy Harper uh, very shortly about everything that's happening uh, in the world of football. If you're not catch, you haven't caught up on the Premier League scores uh, overnight. Another bad night for Chelsea, beaten convincingly at home uh, by Manchester City and Leicester City, uh, having another really good season. They got the points uh, as well. So uh, a couple of the the big guns in the Premier League uh, getting the points this morning. And the A-League uh, also underway and uh, some, a few surprising results on the weekend. I think Andy Harper uh, is there now. Uh, Andy, Happy New Year to you. Julian, you too, mate. You too. Happy to speak with you. Hope you're well. I'm very well. How was the new year for you and the family? Well, mate, it was quiet. My New Year's Eve was taken up with A-League uh, and then a drive home. But I don't think I missed anything because uh, <laughs> there's not a lot going on at the moment. Everyone's pretty quiet. Um, and it's also been very wet up here. So the, 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 the party spirit was dampened on, for a number of reasons. Yeah, no, I think it was pretty quiet down here as well, I must admit as well, with no one sort of descending on the city. But as you mentioned, the A-League is back. Uh, a lot of matches in a, in a short space of time, which is fantastic. But uh, Central Coast uh, winning the, their first two games has surprised 
a lot of people. Is is this a sign that they're going to be a much improved team this year, or is this them just catching a couple of teams on the hop? Well, I don't think it's necessarily either, to be honest. Um, we'd, we'd like to think that uh, the Mariners will be a, a way more formidable opponent this year than they've been in recent years. But, um, you know, we've we've cut them a bit of slack in previous years and got a bit excited before the fact. And, you know, one or two good performances and, and people have been very keen to say that the ship has been turned around. And that's more out of goodwill, I think, than anything else. But, but the, the club hasn't been able to deliver. So uh, I'm not here to rain on the Mariners' early season parade at all. Uh, and I'm very happy for the start they've had. But it's way too early to say if uh, they're a serious title contender at this point. Um, I'm just very happy with the robustness of their first couple of performances uh, and now very keen, like most people, to see if they can push on. I mean, Game 1 was New Year's Eve against the Newcastle Jets um, and they, they won that one fair and square, there's no question. Notwithstanding the fact that Mark Birgidian goal had to make two outstanding saves to keep the Jets at bay, uh, they still deserve to win the game. Um, and then they go away with that win under their belt to, to play MacArthur at home and, and steal them by two goals to nil and, and with a very strong performance uh, as well. Um, so not necessarily they caught other teams on the hop. The league can throw these sorts of, of, of performances up, but um, I, I just hope it can continue because there's been a long time between drinks for Mariners fans. Yeah, that, that was such a, a fantastic club there for a, for a long time with their on-field performance. I want to ask you about I'll ask you about the Melbourne victory shortly in terms of your expectations this season. Disappointing start, losing three one at home. But just talking before about you know David Warner and the fact that he might play in this Test match even though he's not one hundred percent fit. Can you explain to me why Melbourne victory left Marco Rojas on the field when it was clear yeah. that he had a hamstring problem? Well, uh, I can't actually, and I think what's I'm not sure if there's any uh, official diagnosis has come out from the club. Um, Grant Brebner's answer to that question was Marco said he was fine, and so uh, we let him run with that. Um, And then it's gotten to a point, obviously, where Marco says, I I can't continue. And this is an important distinction. Marco's got to a point where he said either I can't continue or I shouldn't continue. I'm not sure which of the two is the case. If it's I, I can't continue, then it, it, it sounds like he might have done a bit more damage. Um, if it's I shouldn't continue, it, it, it might be the case that the twinge he felt early on, which everyone's reacting to, and I completely understand why they're reacting to it, but if, if he feels like it's just not improving and it's on the cusp of getting worse, and he said that that's enough for me, that's a different scenario if you can understand what I'm saying. So I think we're all in the hands of the, the football club to see exactly what they find with this. Um, I hope for the sake of the football club, it's a case It's the case where Marco decided he shouldn't continue rather than I can't continue because you don't want to be risking so early in the season your top talent and Marco shouldn't be risking himself. Um, and maybe, depending on what news comes out, um, maybe Grant Bredman's learned a very serious early lesson in his managerial career. Yeah, they're waiting for scan results on that today. And we saw Andrew Naboo for, for Melbourne City to hurt his hamstring in their first game of the season. What was your What's your thoughts on the Melbourne victory heading into the season? We know always the language out of Melbourne victory is, you know, they expect to win things. And obviously last year was a major disappointment for them. What was your expectation of victory going into this season? Um, well, I thought they'd, 
that um, apart from everything else, the, they had a, a, a bit of a jump on most of the rest of the competition because of their um, uh, contribution, participation in the Champions League, right? Which wasn't looking great when we went into the recess. And, and then, as difficult as it turned out from a Champions League viewpoint, when they resumed that competition in November into December, what it did for victory, Sydney and Perth glory was give those football clubs serious football competition uh, in preparation for the new A-League season that the other clubs weren't going to get. And then when Melbourne Victory qualify out of their group and get an extra competitive match, you know, that's, that, that's four very, very difficult mm. matches in the pre-season that the other teams just did not get. There was no FFA Cup this year. They were having to play, you know, scratch matches against other A-League opponents who were all in similar states of, of readiness. So this is a big advantage for Melbourne Victory uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a match fitness sense. And then the confidence that getting out of, out of the group stage into the round of 16, I don't think, can be measured for, you know, a new team, a lot of kids, a new coach um, up against some big money opponents. I mean, it's a big achievement. And that conf- the confidence should have gone like a wave through the whole football club. Um, and... The first half on Saturday night, or I'm saying Saturday, I'm still in weekend mode, whenever the game was. <laughs> it's hard to know what day it is at the moment. Period. The other night, the first half against Brisbane, I'm thinking all these chickens have come home to roost. This looks like a team that's had four uh, really hard matches in Champions League. Uh, I know they've been in quarantine, which probably dents and dulls some of the senses in between time. But the first half against Brisbane Raw um, was outstanding, I thought. And I thought, here we go, here we go. Um, and the goal from McManaman was just exactly yeah. what the victory fans could have celebrated. How good was that to watch a new player score like that on home? But the second half just collapsed. I thought they were rudderless, uh, passionless. Um, this is what it looked like. And Brisbane just steamrolled them. And it was a worry. The second half was a worry. Losing your first game of the season is disappointing. Losing like that at home first game of the season Um it's just not good enough for Melbourne victory. And the first half promised so much, and the second half just just killed it. Yeah, it was, it was certainly uh, very disappointing. Just talking about Melbourne City, it, it's not the biggest stadium in Australia, is it? Uh, or Cooper Stadium, I think it's known as now. But, geez, a great atmosphere in there. 10,000 there yesterday. And certainly uh, the, the home side, Adelaide United, came to the party. They, they played some really good stuff. Yeah, they did. Colby, it's an excellent coach. Um, He's got a young team, and this is Adelaide United, the outstanding club in the country for for providing opportunities and developing young players and throwing them onto the national scene. And you know they haven't got enough room to keep them all. And, and Melbourne City has been a large beneficiary of the Adelaide production yeah. line. Um, Carl Vitt is a I don't know how long he's been waiting formally for a chance. I know he's been coaching in the system over in South Australia and. And then he was uh, Gertrude Verbeek's assistant. And so that brought him close to the belly of the Adelaide United Beast. And it's looking now like quite an obvious thing to have given him the job. I think he's doing a fantastic job. The team plays with vigour. Um, it plays with speed. It plays with confidence. Um, and it plays with a lot of kids who, who are just not scared of trying anything. I, you know, I think he's set up a really good template there. And Melbourne City, I thought, were they contributed to a very good game. Of course, the balance of power tips when Scotty Jamison got uh, sent off um, and they struggled from that point on. And Melbourne City are a lot of people's fancies to win the competition. I think it's a bit more tight than that. Um, 
you know, I think they've got some excellent players, but I don't know that the foreigners they've got necessarily actually tip them over the edge into favouritism. I think that's one area where that club can, can um, bolster its strength. Um, but it was a really good game, a great result for Adelaide, and, and particularly given the youth of their squad, will, will the important confidence that will come from a win like that might set them up nicely for the comp. Talking to Andy Harper from Fox Sports about all things A-League and the world of football. Uh, we're on air, or I was on air with Simon Hill uh, on New Year's Eve when this news came through that finally the A-League clubs had, had got their wish and they'd got their independence. Um, from your point of view, what does this mean in the short term? And I guess more importantly, in the long term for the future of the A-League? Well, independence of, an, of the A-League, independence of the, of the men's professional competition is not a new concept. Um, you know, this was mooted decades ago as necessary. I know the PFA, when it was um, uh, promoting the Australian Premier League model and when Brendan Schwab was the CEO, etc., um, was promoting the independence of the league from the Football Australia body. I know when the Crawford Report was tabled in 2003-04, uh, it recommended the league separate, operate as a, as a separate entity from the rest of the game. Uh, and the Lowy administration uh, obviously opted not to do that. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, the whole thing really blew up when um, when the private owners of the, who, who run the A-League clubs decided that if they're going to maximise their investment, they need more control uh, over the competition. Um, and that control was formally handed to them on New Year's Eve with whatever legal separation has taken place. It's a very wordy document It goes for... Uh, you know, hundreds of pages, this legal document, apparently. But what it means for the for the league uh, and is that the owners now have got what they've craved, and that is uh, the necessary control uh, over the commercial rights um, so that they feel like they can invest in their clubs. Um, and to the extent that club owners um, have not fully invested the way they might uh, in their fo- football operations, you'd have to think that fans of the game have been shortchanged. Um, and now that uh, the clubs have that ownership uh, as they've negotiated, importantly with Football Australia retaining uh, a key stake in the game, um, now it's up to the clubs to do what they said they were going to do all along, um, except that apart from those comments, we don't have the detail. But they should feel free now to be investing in the comp that, that they materially own and can invest in and for the sake of their teams and the fans I'd like to think will be the winners because of um, the, the, the newfound energy that goes into promoting the competitive charge of each club. How important is getting the marketing and the promotion of the A-League right again? Just my opinion, I feel like the early days it was spot on, a great theme song it was such a big part of the summer sports calendar, it's still a big part but it, it just feels like it's it slipped away a little bit. Is that something the A-League needs to focus on, just getting a bit more on the front foot and, and promoting the good parts of its competition? Well, I think, Julian, I think they're all parts of a competition that's energised. Um, marketing and promotion are key parts of a competition that's energised. And they're key parts of an ownership group that's energised, re-energised about the league. Um, and... You know, it's a symptom of the slackness that's crept in, the inertia that's crept in, the, the fact that you know maybe the league hasn't been um, marketed and promoted the way it might be. Um, but to have a whiz-bang marketing and promotion campaign isn't going to fix everything. And, and I actually think 
Um, the, the first thing that separation needs to confirm in the minds of fans is that every owner or ownership group um, of the clubs in the, in the top competition in the land are hell-bent on winning the competition. I, I just don't think you can... Uh, it's just marketing anything else, promoting anything else, is a lame duck mm. policy. It's a lame duck campaign. If the people who actually own the clubs don't care if they win it or not. I mean, you, you want fans to be yep. connected to your colours and your badge, then your fans need to know that that club is doing everything it can with the resources it's got to win the competition. And the notion that, um, it, that is, if it lingers at all, that there are owners there who've come in, bought a licence, and are just looking to flip it to the first person who mm. comes so they can make a few quid, doesn't cut it with fans. Fans aren't going to care more about a club than the person or people who are bankrolling it. They can't. And in my opinion, if fans get the sense that they're potentially caring more for this than the people who are charged um, to, who own the thing, then that's a, that's a key break in the yeah. relationship. And, and the owners have to take the fans with them on this competitive journey. Um, one of the reasons I believe why Melbourne Victory as one club have been so successful uh, over the course of the journey is because of that communication between, even if it's unspoken, between the ownership group um, and the fans is that we're both desperate to win this competition. You, you can see it with the victory board and owners when they do cutaways at ground. They, they feel every kick. Yeah. They ride every wave of the game just like the fans do. Um, unfortunately, over the course of the league, I don't think you could say that about every single club. And you have to be able to say that about every single club. Otherwise, whatever marketing and promotion you do just falls flat. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that goes that goes for any sport, doesn't it? And we've seen that in, in, in football overseas with some of the ownership uh, of the Premier League clubs as well. Speaking of the Premier League, Andy, uh, about 10 days ago, all the pressure was on Mikhail Alteta. Uh, he's turned it around a little bit, yeah. three wins in a row for Arsenal, but it's gone across London. Frank Lampard, Chelsea, in a really sticky patch at the moment, beaten comprehensively this morning by Manchester City 3-1 at home, and it could have been more. That's how dominant Man City were. Given the owner that Chelsea's got, that they, they do turn over managers quickly, should Frank be getting yeah. a little bit worried with this with this run of results? Well, or? well, well there's a, there, there, you get to this point where people start talking behind their hands on the back of their hands, Julian, don't you? And it's not a good sign. Um, and you would think if Abramovich is going to be loyal to anyone or more loyal than he is to, to other people, it would be to someone like Frank Lampard. Um, and I think, uh, well, we, needless to say, we don't have the psychology or the mindset of a Roman Abramovich, so we, we don't know how deep those ties are. But the most people... Um, having discussions like this would sort of be inclined to think that he might show a bit more patience to Lampard than he would to someone else. Well, yeah. time will tell on that. Mm. But the chattering um, out of England is that they play Fulham next, I think it is, um, and if they don't beat Fulham, then he could be for the chop. Now, that's going to be a big call. Uh, if that happens, uh, I'm not sure it's going to. I, I, I tend to think he might show a bit more patience um, but if that happens, that would just completely re-emphasise, as if we need a reminding, just how bloody-minded this game can be. Because, uh, you know, it's not often you get a club hero emerge to coach a team like this and then to behead that guy. So, um, 
well, we're obviously going to wait with bated breath. The Mikel Arteta thing is instructive. Uh, things can turn quickly. There's no shame in losing to a Manchester City mm. who, by the proclamations of coach uh, Pep Guardiola, said that sort of football is the reason we won titles. Um, and so, you know, that Melbourne, that Manchester City can flip the switch shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, and maybe people are looking into a home loss against uh, Manchester City within the context of this season of Manchester City's comparative struggles. But a, a club with players of that quality can flick the switch. And if you're on the receiving in that particular day, maybe that should be taken into consideration as well. Look, it's nervous times for Chelsea. Um, you couldn't put anything past the owner to act drastically. Uh, I think most of us, the human side of most of us would like to think it's going to get a bit more time because we value those things like loyalty, etc. But maybe it's more bloody-minded than that. Yeah, Fulham, Burnley and Wolves, the next three for Chelsea. Just finally, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, Andy, the great man, he keeps scoring two more goals this morning for Juve. He's now overtaken Pelé. 758 yeah. goals, Pelé 757. A, how would Pelé feel about that? And B, would Pelé argue he scored more goals than that? No, probably, probably <laughs> just without the digital record. That's very proven. I don't know. Look, I, I, I had to sort of throw my hands up a while ago now and tell you I've run out of words to describe Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, it, it's just phenomenal that in this day and age, at that level of football, that you can still be doing so well uh, into his thirties now. No sign of slowing down. Um, you know the amount of preparation analysis uh, that goes into stopping players like him, stopping teams like Juve. Um, and still this guy scores after, as game after game is scoring goals. The only thing intergenerationally, and I, I sort of try and resist making these comparisons, but, um, you know, in the old days of a Pelé into a Maradona sort of thing, um, with less regulation and more brutal defences um, and, and no video replays, <laughs> You know, I, I think physically someone like Ronaldo might have had a bit more of a difficult time <laughs> yeah. to look at some of the old footage and, and just the hatchet jobs that were done on Maradona over the years. We, thankfully, we don't see that in the modern context, but what you get maybe is a, a bit more of a skewed statistic. Look, I'm a massive fan of both Ronaldo and Messi. I don't want to say anything that's going to take away from their achievements, um, if anyone's sort of suggesting that I am. Um, but he's just a phenomenon. He really, it's just incredible. Uh, I, I've given up trying to find a new way to describe it. Yeah, we're, we're very lucky we've lived in this era, haven't we, with, uh, you know, Messi and Ronaldo being so dominant for so long. Andy, always great to chat. hope the weather improves up there, and we look forward to seeing you on Fox Sports uh, when the A-League resumes on Friday night. Thanks for having me, Jules. Good on you, mate. Pleasure. Always great to chat to Andy Harper from Fox Sports. Uh, we'll take a break. Plenty more coming up on SEN Afternoons. Afternoons on SEN. Welcome back to Afternoons. Julian Destoot with you. Great to have Andy Harper from Fox Sports on the show talking all things A-League and also what's going on in the Premier League. And certainly the big story uh, in England right now is Frank Lampard, the manager of Chelsea. They're in a really sticky patch at the moment. Uh, they've gone down to eight in the table following their loss to Man City this morning. Uh, Ash from Baldwin on the temper text machine. You can always join us, 0433 or give us a call on the open line, 1300 736 736. Uh, Ash says, Chelsea was just too impatient. Lampard did a two-year apprenticeship at Derby in the championship and wasn't even responsible for most of the positional changes there. 
Lampard needs to go back another level to get his management skills set sharpened. So that's Ash in Borwin's uh, take. He did a good job in the first season, given there was a transfer ban on the club to get them into the Champions League. But certainly this year, they brought in some very good players. It just hasn't quite gelled at Chelsea yet. So that's going to be a big story. And as Andy mentioned, uh, if you look at their next three games, Fulham, Burnley and also Wolves, they don't get some good results there. The pressure... Uh, is going to be amped up on Frank Lampard, no doubt about that. Just a bit of an update on this cricket situation as well. Some news has come through that uh, the Indian players and support staff and also the Cricket Australia players staff and match officials uh, all had COVID tests yesterday, uh, all tested negative, which is really good. But um, as mentioned by Robert Craddock earlier, and a man that's doing some great things on SEN cricket this summer is Bharat Sundarasan. And he, he is as close to anyone uh, in the Indian camp. He's written a story on CrickBuzz uh, here saying there's still a lot of discontent uh, in the Indian camp. And they don't see any reason off the back the fact that they've all tested negative uh, yesterday, why they should be have, have to be in quarantine uh, for the remainder of the tour. Now, this article goes on to say that they're not prepared to be treated like animals in a zoo in terms of being in hotel quarantine while 20,000 fans are watching them play cricket at the SCG. We should get an update later today on exactly the numbers the SCG are expecting or will cap the crowd at uh, for the third test, which starts on Thursday. And also this article from the source that Barat has got here, has gone on to say that uh, just explaining the version of events which saw five players uh, reportedly breach the bubble in Melbourne by dining uh, indoors on January 1. Now, the insider has told uh, CrickBuzz, the players went indoors to eat only because it started raining. We don't understand why these five players need to be isolated or asked to be sit separately on the flight, especially after they tested negative for the virus. So clearly there's still some discontent uh, in the Indian camp. Now, they're going to fly to Sydney today, like the Australian team uh, ahead of this match, starting on January 7. So it's clearly not all uh, happy in the Indian camp. And, and this article goes on to say what the Indians have wanted all along is they just want to be treated like everyone else in Australia right now, where they're, they're happy to oblige uh, by all the COVID rules, uh, but they just don't see a need why they're in quarantine. So interesting times and we're just going to keep following this story very closely because it seems like even though uh, the Queensland government seem to have come to some sort of agreement there in terms of uh, sort of this cricket bubble that will be set up where they're not locked in their rooms all the time, seem to be something that people thought would appease uh, the Indian camp, certainly by that article on CrickBuzz, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. So uh, we'll just keep following that uh, very, very closely over the next a uh, couple of days. Uh, we'll get back to your calls uh, very shortly, but let's quickly check in with the SEN newsroom with Sam Fantasia. Thank you to Sammy Fantasia. Now, we're just talking before to Andy Harper about uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and, I guess, comparisons uh, to Palais. That's on the back of the news this morning that uh, Ronaldo scored two goals for the Juventus. He's now gone ahead of Palais in terms of career goals, 758 uh, Palais scored 757. Joseph from Essendon, uh, certainly not happy. There's any comparisons uh, between the two, he said on the temper text machine. And you can join us on 0433 uh, at any time you like. Temper, a mattress like no other. He says, turn it up. Palais won three World Cups. Enough said. That was from Joseph in Essendon. Yeah, certainly he did. He's got the success at World Cup level that Ronaldo doesn't. Ronaldo did lead his team uh, to a win in the European Championships, but he hasn't got a World Cup uh, under his belt uh, so far. But look, it, you know, people that are in their 
you know, probably 50s and 60s have been lucky that they, they would have seen Palais, they would have seen Maradona, they would have seen Ronaldo, uh, and they would have seen Messi. A few of us that are a bit younger have been lucky enough to grow up, maybe with the, the back end of Maradona, uh, Ronaldo and Messi that have been unbelievable players uh, for more than a decade now. If you're just catching up on the Premier League scores from this morning, uh, Chelsea went down at home 3-1 to Manchester City and uh, Leicester going beautifully. Once again, uh, 2-1 winners on the road uh, against Newcastle. And once again, after winning that unexpected championship a few years ago, they're right back in the hunt uh, this season in what is proving to be a very, very tight English Premier League season. Uh, Liverpool play Southampton uh, tomorrow before there's a bit of a break uh, with the FA Cup uh, third round uh, getting underway uh, on the weekend. Now, very shortly on SEN Afternoons, we're going to speak to Andrew Harris, a, a 26-year-old uh, tennis player from Melbourne. He got a wild card into the Australian Open uh, last year. He lost in straight sets to the number eight seed, Matteo Berrettini, uh, in the first round. He's trying to qualify again. No wild card this time, but like uh, 19 other Australians, there's 11 men and nine women. He's heading overseas uh, for qualifying. So normally, uh, that will be at Melbourne Park, of course, with COVID this year. The qualifying has been moved to the Middle East. For the men, uh, they're playing in Doha. The women are playing in Dubai. So he'll jump on a plane uh, tomorrow night and uh, in his bid to make it into the main draw at Melbourne Park. Now, Bernard Tomic uh, is another one of those men that is trying to qualify uh, via qualifying. So he'll be on his way to the Middle East as well. So we'll talk to Andrew Harris uh, very shortly. We're also going to touch base before the end of the show uh, to Josh Giddy, uh, who could be the next star of Australian basketball. He's about to embark on his first professional season. He's playing with the Adelaide 36ers uh, in the NBL, but certainly there's a lot of scouts from the NBA that will be keeping a very close eye on Josh. He's been likened to Ben Simmons uh, with his passing ability, similar size. Uh, so we'll touch base with Josh as well to chat about uh, just getting his professional career underway and uh, just what he thinks about those comparisons and also how aware, I guess, he is of already the phantom drafts that have him pretty high up in terms of the NBA draft. So we'll speak to Josh as well. Let's take a quick break. And on the other side, we'll chat to young Australian tennis player, Andrew Harris. Afternoons on SEN. Well, normally the courts at Melbourne Park would be a flurry of activity at the moment with Australian Open qualifying about to get underway. But uh, due to COVID restrictions, it's very different this year with a lot of players descending on the Middle East in a bid to make their way into the main draw at Melbourne Park for the Australian Open starting on February 8. 20 Australians, 11 men and 9 women will try to do their best to get into the draw when they play in the Middle East uh, coming up very shortly. And one of the men... Uh, that is about to head over is Andrew Harris, who's been good enough to join us on the line. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Very, very different uh, this year. Just take us through, uh, first of all, when do you fly out uh, for the Middle East? Uh, so I fly out tomorrow night at like 10.30 p.m. So it gets me in at I think 5.30 in the morning on the 6th in Doha. It is very different. Uh, you've been at a physio appointment this morning. I'm assuming everything with the body's A-OK? Yeah, no, the body's actually been feeling the best it's felt in probably over a year. I've had some, some back issues um, previously and during this year where I've struggled, but changed up a bit of my off-court training and, uh, yeah, I'm feeling really ready to go. What's Just take us through what 2020 was like for you. I mean, obviously with tennis a lot of the time, a lot of the focus is on on the big guns and there's been a lot of talk about who's played and who hasn't played uh, in 2020, but what was the year like for yourself? Um, it was actually a bit of a tough year, to be honest. I mean, I was overseas in American Canada early in the year, um, just playing some challenges, so the, just the one tier below the tour level. Um, and then, yeah, March came along, and I was 
about to play another tournament and then that's when obviously the COVID all blew up and then got home, did my two-week self-isolation and then, yeah, then it was just sort of like a holding pattern but to figure out when the tour will resume. Initially, they said six weeks, but then obviously that got dragged out um, all those months and, you know, we had I was in Melbourne the whole time, so we had to deal with the stage three and stage four restrictions, so that was obviously pretty tough and just like just the uncertainty of when the tour will resume um and i actually had some back issues i got a procedure done on my back that sort of kept me out uh, of training for a couple months and then yeah then i finally was able to get back up and going for french open which was in i think i left in september august september and uh yeah it was just sort of everything was sort of last minute and just you know couldn't really plan well and yeah, it was a bit a bit difficult uh, mentally. Obviously, coming from all the lockdowns as well was tough. But uh, hopefully, hopefully this year will be better. But who knows? Yeah, it is tough. I guess with COVID, still a big problem overseas. That's going to affect uh, tennis a lot. You mentioned the back procedure there. Uh, back injuries can be tricky, and uh, it's a bit of a worry when we hear sportsmen have back procedures. What exactly did you have done, and, and how's it feeling right now? Um, yeah, so I've had a history of uh, back issues with like bulging discs in my back, and um, I actually just got a procedure. I forget exactly what it's called, but it's where they uh, inject some stuff into your into my disc, and it like burns. It burns some of the disc to sort of shrink it, so it doesn't bulge. Um, so I actually had that same procedure about seven years ago, and actually helped like significantly. But this time, I didn't find it. It did as much, and. Um, yeah, so I sort of went over to French Open pretty underdone and probably shouldn't have been playing, to be honest. But then since I've come home, I've changed up my training. I'm actually I'm actually not lifting weights anymore. I'm doing a different form of training called uh, DNS. My back's been feeling so much better. And, uh, yeah, it's, the most, it's probably the most ready I've felt in, yeah, over a year, which is good. Speaking to Australian tennis player Andrew Harris, who's about to head over to Doha in a bit to make his way into the main draw for the Australian Open. You mentioned that change in, in training there. What, what specifically does that entail now that, you, as you say, it's a different program and you're not in the gym uh, doing weights anymore? Yeah, so I think the, the weights are just sort of aggravating my back, unfortunately. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a relatively new sort of training. To, it's pretty difficult to describe, but the best sort of easiest way is sort of like a modified form of yoga. So it's much more much more technical than yoga and uh it's all about body alignment and changing the way my body moves. Uh, but yeah, I think not having the load going through my back has actually helped it so much. And uh, just changing my movement patterns and everything has really helped. And uh, no, I've just been able to train more on court, spend more, a lot more time on court, get the hours up. And uh, yeah, that's I think that's been the best thing for me so far. Has it been difficult to learn that sort of training? I mean, yoga can be quite complicated at times. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, I've been doing it six times a week. It, it's frustrating because it's like a different language um, <laughs> when you learn it from the start, especially with the guy I do it. It's like a different language, but uh, you just keep improving each time. You can never really perfect it because it's so technical. But, but yeah, I mean, so far, so good. And uh, the proof has been in the amount of hours I've been able to stay on court. So if I can stay healthy, then hopefully I can start getting some results. Uh, so you head out to, to the Middle East tomorrow night so what what's the process once you arrive um so i get a covid test at the airport upon arrival in doha and then i think we've got private transport where they'll take you to the official hotel and you have to isolate i'm assuming for 24 hours um until you get your negative test result back and then once assuming i'm negative i'll be able to uh, train on site so 
I'll be I'll have three full days of training, um, and then I'll play on the tenth. But I, you th- I think you have to get a second negative test before you can compete. So one negative test to train, but then two to negatives to actually compete. Yeah. Yeah, it is very different. Uh, as we said, uh, you obviously had a taste of the Australian Open getting into the main draw uh, last year. Pretty tough first up opponent, the eight seed, Matteo Berrettini. Uh, what would it mean for you to, to get back in there this year? Oh, it mean a huge deal. I mean, obviously it was an amazing experience playing my first main draw, but uh, yeah, I was pretty nervous and I sort of let the occasion get a bit, uh, get the better of me a bit. So hopefully this time I can actually earn my way through qualifying and then, you know, have another real crack at it with the a year under my belt of past experience. So, yeah, it'd be amazing if I can really qualify this year. Just take us through what life is like. When, you know, when you're playing qualifiers, you're playing, you know, secondary tours at times, just desperate to break in, you know, to some of the big tournaments around the world. You mentioned, you know, this year was difficult mentally because everything COVID. But even in a normal year, how tough is sort of grinding away, trying to make your way into main draws through qualifying and, and so forth? Oh mate, it's difficult. Obviously, the challenger, the challenger tour, where you're playing predominantly most of the year for me right now, it's a grind. I mean, you know, the prize money is very small. You often go into places that aren't great, and you know, you're playing guys, often guys, you know, top hundred still playing these events, and uh, yeah, it's a bloody grind. Um, but it's actually, yeah, you got to try and just get through that as best you can and get your ranking up, so when you can start playing the bigger events where there's more points on offer, and then. Yeah, chipping away at your ranking so, so you can get into some of the qualities of the tour events. And then, obviously, the next step up is getting yourself into a position where you can play the main draws. But, yeah, it's definitely a grind, but it's something you've just, you just got to do and get past. Speaking to Australian tennis player Andrew Harris, you mentioned there it, it's a grind, and obviously it's a sport that you absolutely love. But is there times where you think, what am I putting myself through this for? <laughs> um, no, I definitely do love it. it it's more when I have those sorts of thoughts is from a, a body standpoint. It's when my body's letting me down. I'm just like, I'm doing all these hours of, you know, rehab and training and all this. And it's like my body wasn't holding up. That's what I found more mentally difficult. But it's just amazing when my, my back feels good again. It's like, it's amazing how much more I enjoy the sport. And I've really noticed that the last sort of couple of months where I've been feeling good. It's just like that enjoyment just comes back. And uh, yeah, I mean, when I'm happy, I'm obviously playing better tennis. So Hopefully, you know, I can play enough events this year and pain-free and just really sort of rise up the rankings. Now, for some might not be aware that your mum is a former tour player and Minter, top 25 player. She was a quarter-finalist at the Australian Open in 1988. She won four titles uh, on the tour. Show me. I actually remember your mum playing, so that actually shows my <laughs> age uh, a little bit. But uh, I was reading an article where she just she just can't even check your scores half the time. So... I mean, maybe the fact that you're playing overseas, she's probably not too worried about that. Oh, I mean, she'd probably prefer that, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, I know, because even when I played, like, the junior Australian Open back when I was young, you know, she just hated coming to watch. And then, obviously, qualities a few times at Australian Open. She just... I remember she saw her in the crowd uh, for a few minutes uh, watching me, but then she left. And then I was like, well, where'd you leave? And she said, no, I got too nervous. You couldn't even watch. So it's kind of funny, because my dad's the complete opposite. You know, he's really relaxed and can watch and wants to watch as much as he can. But, uh, yeah, my mum just, just can't handle it, which is sort of surprising considering, you know, she's been there before and played at that level. Well, some of the tennis p- parents go too far the other way. So it's probably good that uh, your mum is like that. But how much have you sort of lent on your mum for advice uh, over the years, as you say, given she's been there and done it? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, not a whole lot because she's always been pretty 
uh, pretty low-key about her career. Um, she never, I mean, when I asked, she obviously talked about it, but um, she's always, like, sort of kept it pretty pretty low-key, all of her experiences, and just let let me do my own thing and, you know, figure things out myself. But if I ever want to talk to her about certain things, she's always will talk. But it's sort of my dad's been the one who's been more more involved in my tennis, sort of coaching me up until I was 14. And But, um, yeah, but it definitely helps mum having some of that experience for sure. But, yeah, not a huge amount of involvement with my tennis up to this point. Uh, Peter Mercado was talking on the uh, morning program this morning with Sam Edmund. We're talking about um, Christopher O'Connell. Just uh, mm-hmm. for the tennis fans out there that might know not too not, might not know too much about Chris, he's had, he had a fantastic year in in 2019. Obviously, 2020 was difficult for everyone. But uh, just give us a snapshot of, of of Chris's tennis because he's same age as you, and uh, he's made some giant strides. Just give us an insight into Chris. Oh, you know, Chris, yeah, he's a great guy, good friend, a uh, good friend of mine. But uh, yeah, he's uh, battled with some injuries too for a while and was struggling. But then he, uh, you know, the year he had last year was just absolutely incredible. The amount of matches he won and stayed away all year and just played, played tournament after tournament and just built built a lot of confidence from winning a lot of matches and just shows, you know, when he could finally get healthy and play some consistent tennis, what what he could do. So it was really good to see him succeed and, you know, hopefully I can follow in those footsteps. So short-term goal, obviously, is to qualify for the Australian Open. That's what you're thinking about for the next week or so. But what are some of your, your other goals for 2021? Um, well, I mean, first and foremost, I think it's most important I can stay healthy for the full year. Um, and then, yeah, if I can, then just play a full, full tournament, full schedule and try and, you know, push towards that top 100 ranking barrier. That's, that's obviously the next goal. Oh, well, Andrew, we, we wish you all the best. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a different challenge this year going overseas and trying to qualify for the Australian Open, but uh, we hope you come back uh, and you're in the main draw for the second uh, year in a row. Safe travels uh, over to the Middle East, and uh, thank you for joining us on the show this afternoon. Uh, thank you, John. Have a good one. Great to chat to Andrew Harris, a young Australian tennis player on the way to the Middle East trying to qualify for the Australian Open main draw. We'll be back with plenty more on SEN Afternoons very shortly. Afternoons on SEN. Welcome back to Afternoons. Julian DeStoop with you. Now, we mentioned about 20 minutes ago that we're expecting to get an announcement on the crowds for the SCG test. Now, that's come through, and Cricket Australia has confirmed some reports that were going around only about 15 minutes ago that uh, the capacity has now been cut from what they hoped would be 50% uh, capacity per day down to 25%. Now, they're saying 25% initially. So uh, whether that means that will change as the test goes on. And if you're just tuning in, uh, great news out of New South Wales today. No new uh, COVID-19 cases, but uh, the government and Cricket Australia, or mainly the government, have decided to cut it back uh, to 25% uh, capacity initially uh, for the SCG test. So um, that's an uh, interesting development uh, in that story. And uh, in terms of the weather for uh, Sydney as well, it's been a bit of a talking point. So a few showers predicted 23 on Thursday for day one, uh, 24 a few showers day two on Friday, and 22 a chance of a shower on Saturday. Sunday and Monday uh, looking pretty good. So hopefully not too much rain for the Sydney test. Uh, after 2 o'clock, we're going to talk about this interesting story emerged out of horse racing in the last 24 hours. There's a big push in the industry to start track work later to help uh, with burnout in the industry and also attract some new people uh, to the sport. So we'll speak to former jockey Claire Lindop and also a current trainer in Gordon Richards about this uh, development and what it might mean uh, for the racing industry. Also going to speak to Josh Giddy after 2 o'clock.
You're listening to SEN Afternoons. We'll check in now with the newsroom and Sam Fantasia. Plenty more coming up on Afternoons. Afternoons on SEN. Welcome back to Afternoons. Julian DeStoop with your big final hour coming up. Going to chat to Claire Lindop uh, in a second about this story in racing that there's an industry-wide push to to start track work later in the morning to help uh, ease burnout in the industry and also hopefully attract uh, some new people to the industry as well. Just following the NFL scores uh, very closely, uh, there's one more spot uh, wildcard spot to be decided. Uh, Washington, if they can beat the Eagles, they will get it. They currently lead 17-14 early stages in the third quarter. If they don't win, uh, the New York Giants will get that final spot. And already sacking season's begun uh, in the NFL. It's just come through the New York Jets of sack coach Adam Gaze. Uh, he's uh, had a pretty poor record, uh, 9-23 and 23 in his two seasons. Uh, his time is done. But we're going to chat to former... Jockey, star jockey, Claire Lindop, one of SEN's own as well, about this developing story in racing uh, surrounding uh, the time start for track work. She's been good enough to join us on the line. Happy New Year, Claire. Happy New Year to you, Julian. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure. Uh, great to chat. Uh, just you hear this question so often when uh, people that aren't close supporters of racing say, why the hell is track work so early? Um, traditionally, can you just explain to people why this has been the case? Yeah, well, I don't think anyone has one exact answer for you. I don't have an absolute silver bullet explanation. But traditionally, I believe um, it was because, uh, you know, you, particularly the kings and queens and lords had horses, uh, race horses. Um, the farmers would work the horses before they got off the rest of their um, day, day's work. Um, but I probably would explain that now in modern times, there is benefits towards working horses early. Um, for example, if you look at the Olympic swimmers' routines, we always start early and do a morning session, uh, and then in the afternoon they might do another light training session. So generally speaking, the horses are worked again in the afternoon, and that might be a swim or just a, uh, a walk or that kind of thing. So you do have that chance to look at your horse as an athlete, um, and in the afternoon you might have a vet or a farrier or you know masseuse or chiropractor or something else happen to the animal. So you do work it in the morning, see how it recovers for the day. But in saying that, there's absolutely no reason why it has to be as early as what we're doing. I probably agree with that. Yeah, so Chris Waller's been really big on this. So just reading an article uh, with quotes from him yesterday saying, you know, burnout is a real factor uh, in this industry. You know, why would any parent want their, their child getting involved mm. in racing when they've got to start work uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning? Because of this, it's becoming really hard to attract uh, people that want to work into the sport. And there's also talk about, you know, improved conditions uh, for stable hands and as part of this as well. So just from, from your experience and like all you know, great jockeys, you would have spent years doing morning uh, track works. How tough was it sort of mentally yeah. and physically, these early starts, and then, as you say, you're going on and racing later in the day as well? Yeah, I've had uh, very experiences everywhere I started. I started in Warrnambool Country, Victoria, and there's no race course lights really at that stage. Um, this is the early 90s. So r- track work didn't really start until daylight. So I had the introduction to racing where I used to get to the stables at 6 a.m. And the time I took horses to the track, um, used to float them to the track from the country area that we were in, um, you know, it was 6.30, 7 o'clock. So it was actually reasonable. Um, and so my introduction to racing and why I did love it and enjoy it was that it wasn't such a crazy start time. Um, and so I don't think a lot of the country tracks do start earlier. Uh, sorry, a little bit later. and um, But they also finish later. So I was doing sort of 
um, six to twelve o'clock, and then again in the afternoon you do the afternoon shift. It might be from three to five or from two to six, depending on how many horses your stable has. Um, but when you're talking the volumes of metropolitan tracks and the amount of horses that big stables have, that's when the time factor becomes important. And every horse takes, um, uh, you know, up to half an hour to have it, or half an hour to an hour to work. So you have to have a number of staff to get through all of those horses. So that's kind of where they start earlier and earlier. And the dearth of um, skilled track work riders and skilled people to handle the horses is causing people to start earlier and work longer to get that amount of work done. So our industry definitely does need more participants involved. And I guess probably what COVID has done, it also has stopped itinerant workers. We used to have a lot of backpackers come through and there'd always be uh, stable jobs, you know, just for backpackers who just want some money um, you know, obviously not a career in racing, but they're just coming through and happy to get some some wages uh, working in stables. Um, and that's something our industry's probably really noticed we lack too, I think, in this last 12 months or so. So, yeah, I think we are crying out for workers, and that's probably why there's a renewed push again to actually have different hours to attract people into industry. And I totally agree, burnout's a massive factor. Um, just to give you an example as a jockey, in Adelaide, um, it's not quite as uh, crazy hours. The track opens at 4:30 a.m., so you'd be turning up at the track, you know, 4:15 a.m. Um, and jump on a couple of horses, and it takes you know 15, 20 minutes to ride each horse. If you just jump on and off, your feet hardly touch the ground. All horses all morning. You're getting home at sort of you know 7:30 to 8:30 in the morning, um, and then on a race day, that's when you get off to the races. So in South Australia, you want to race three or four times a week. So I guess then it comes the issue with the, the jockeys or uh, track work riders are going to the races. Um, is there enough staff left at home in the stables to finish the um, horses who aren't racing or their workouts and routines? So that's where we're saying um, we possibly don't have enough staff to manage not working early. So what comes first, chicken or the egg kind yeah. of situation with that. Has it, yeah. be- has it become even a bigger problem? We're speaking to Claire Lindop, uh, champion jockey, about this industry push within horse racing to push back the time uh, for the start of track work. Has it become an, an even bigger issue now? Because we're seeing more and more twilight meetings. We're seeing more and more night meetings. And therefore, for a whole range of people in the industry, it, there's some pretty quick turnarounds as well. Absolutely. You're spot on there by saying that the nature of the job has probably changed and evolved, particularly in the last 10 years. Um, as far as the race day, even you know, all Sunday racing now, which is, you know, like last Saturday, we'd never had Sunday races. So therefore then the job description probably needs to change on the other end, which it hasn't done. I and mean, even our apprentice system is a little bit of um, still the old kind of uh, system. We haven't really changed um, to suit modern times. Absolutely agree with, with that sort of suggestion with the night racing, et cetera, um, really putting pressure on staff numbers. Absolutely. Is it something and that... Also, I think it's sorry. really... Sorry. There you go. There okay. you go. I was going to say, is it something that, that has to be regulated by the industry? Otherwise, you'll have certain, you know, trainers that will want to still start at 3 o'clock or 3.30 in the morning. Is it something that, that has to be regulated by the industry to make sure that, that everyone is doing track work at, you know, starting at a certain time or they can't start before a certain time? Well, I think individually tracks now have um, their own start times um, and it's probably got a lot to do with track maintenance as well and how they can keep on top of that. Um, so you're, t- you're talking, you know, about five, five, six hours of horses working to get through each track and then after that it's probably five or six hours to all of maintenance to do. So that needs to be looked at as well. 
But I would think that unless it becomes regulated hours, um, start time, you're still going to have people wanting to just get in that bit early. And, uh, you know, sneakily, um, you know, the old tradition of working horses before the towers are out there as well, watching the horses um, in the track work, that used to be something that went on. Um, but I think if everything becomes regulated as far as, you know, tracks don't open till six, that means the staff aren't arriving at stables. They're still arriving at stables an hour prior to the track opening. Yeah. So we're still getting to work at five. But I think there's a massive difference between getting to work at five than getting to work at three. It's like, it, and, and I think now there's even been more studies and like your show again is obviously really involved around football as well. And I think there's been massive studies on the performance of footballers and sleep and recovery. And that's something that I think staff fatigue is something that I think really needs to be put paramount for work health and safety issues. And also, we're dealing with animals, um, and I personally believe that working with animals and racehorses of this nature is akin to working with kindergarten kids or, or, or children. <laughs> and it's so important that the staff, um, you know, have their patience and their wits, wits about them. Um, every day, it's, it's a new challenge, and it, it can be some really nasty accidents if people aren't on their, um, you know, on their toes with horses um, in the disabled environment. So for me personally, I would welcome... Um, hours being more regulated um, and maybe we need to be able to attract new staff into the industry to help support that. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm sort of rambling a bit, but no. just to touch on the European model, yep. yeah, that's a little bit similar. They, um, some of the places I worked in England, they actually don't start till 7am in the morning, but then they have a shift, so the 7am workers will come in till about 1pm in the afternoon, they have a break for mid-morning breakfast. Uh, and then the afternoon shift comes. So you actually have two different lots of staff. You also have different staff who go to the races. And when when um, staff take horses to the races, uh, and particularly in England, if it's a long journey, they generally stay overnight with a horse. Horse is stabled on the course overnight and then comes back the next day. So it's just a different um, industry. And certainly there is other examples out there of how it could work. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way that they do it over there. You mentioned before in one of your previous answers about burnout, and, and you absolutely agree with Chris Waller that burnout is a real issue for the racing industry. I mean, I'm sure you must have seen a lot of people in your industry that, that did suffer burnout and, and potentially were, were lost to the industry altogether. Well, it's a physically demanding job. Riding horses, I think um, the art of track work is um, something that's, I don't know if it's quite given enough um, respect in our industry to be perfectly honest so we have you see constantly advertising for people who can ride gallops and times and I think um, some of the larger stables have very good jockeys now who are just paid to ride track work and I think that's becoming more and more of a job description that they actually professional track work riders um, and I think that's really hard to get um, great riders but it's a physically demanding job and the hours that they keep it's hard to have um, a family life and social life as well. And that, those two don't really gel that well. So I guess that's a challenge. And there's other industries that would face similar um, challenges. So I don't mean to sort of um, think that we're one alone. But how we handle that as an industry is becoming, it's really starting to affect staff and relations. So it's something that we really have to look at as, a, as an issue. We don't have enough. If you think about Australia, there's only about 700 licensed jockeys out of the whole of Australia. It's actually not that many. No, it's so not that many. That surprises me there's actually that work, low. Yeah. Work with that. 
Mm. Yeah, and I guess yeah. the more we're learning too about mental health, uh, you know, these, these are important issues about work-life balance and, you know, working under fatigue and all these things. Just finally, before I let you go on a, I guess, a more uh, a positive note, it, uh, it's only early in 2021, very early, but uh, the early signs are Jamie Carr is set for a big 2021. What have you made of uh, her early season form and uh, particularly what she's done in not only the last few weeks, but recent months as well? Oh, I'm absolutely really proud of her. Yeah, really think she's obviously, there's not many, um, how much, how can you describe her performance? I mean, everyone's um, on her bandwagon now, but I've been a big fan of Jamie for years. Um, and she takes a little while to mature as a writer, but it's been um, really good that she's sort of um, had that time away when she was younger and come back to it. And she's really taking, taking a world by storm, really. And it'd be good to see what she does going forward. And um, yeah, I look forward to writing, see her ride her, Next group one, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, she is absolutely flying at the moment. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for your time. Uh, a lot of what you made you said there about the issue uh, makes a lot of sense and we'll follow the story very closely. Thanks for your time on SEN today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Great to have champion jockey Claire Lindop with us. So it's, it's a really interesting issue, this about uh, track work, and it's, it's good to see the racing industry is is looking out for everyone in the industry. It's not just the jockeys, as Claire mentioned. It's all the stable hands that, uh, you know, and, and people that don't get paid a lot of money and sometimes volunteers that are getting up at ridiculously uh, early times uh, in the morning. So we've got the jockey's perspective there. After the break, uh, we're going to get a trainer's perspective uh, on this as well with uh, Gordon Richards. Stay tuned to SEN Afternoons. Welcome back. Afternoons with Julian Stoop. Great to have your company. We're looking right into this, in, this issue in horse racing at the moment, an industry-wide push uh, to push back the start time for track work. And this is uh, a few reasons for this. One, to attract some new people to the sport. Two, uh, to prevent burnout uh, in the industry as well. It's another reason that's been put forward. And Chris Waller, uh, one of the most powerful trainers in the country, has thrown his support uh, behind uh, this push. Just a bit of NBA news. Steph Curry is back in town, throwing up 40 points before three-quarter time uh, in the match against the Portland Trailblazers. So great to see Steph Curry uh, back in form. And you're just joining us to the news coming through in the last half an hour about the SCG test. Originally, uh, the government and Cricket Australia were hoping for 50% capacity. That's been slashed to 25% initially. So day one, it'll be capped at 12,000. And if there's rain around, it could be even limited uh, even further. So we'll keep our eyes on that story as it develops. And we spoke to Claire Lindop, uh, champion jockey, uh, before the break to get a jockey's perspective on uh, track work and, and what time track work should start. Let's get a trainer's perspective now uh, with Gordon Richards, who's been good enough to join us on the line. Uh, Happy New Year, Gordon. Same to you, buddy. Great to have you on. Uh, what's your initial thoughts? We just read out some quotes from uh, Chris Waller before. He's very big on uh, you know how important it would be to the industry to maybe push back the start of track work for a couple of hours. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? I'm happy with how it is. Um, I come up in the old school where a lot of people in the industry in the country had other jobs, so uh, the only time to do the work was before breakfast and then off to your other job. So it's sort of been ingrained in me uh, that way, and uh, that's the way I'd like to keep going. I, you know, I like to get, get these things over and done with, get the horses back in the boxes resting. Um, yeah, to, just uh, yeah, it just doesn't seem right to be working them all day. I don't think. What time do you get underway with your track work? Uh, 3.30, the staff get there, and they're at the track by 4.30 when the track opens. And we usually finish uh, track work at least by 8, 8.30. Um, that gives 
yeah, it gives you plenty of time. From they don't close the track on you while you're there. They have to close the track as well um, for the maintenance staff and uh, anything else going on. So, yeah, I'm quite happy with it is at the moment. If it did change and you had to start your track work, say an hour and a half, two hours later uh, in the morning, would, would that have a big impact on you and your stable? Oh, it wouldn't be a big impact. It change things a bit. I've, I've got a couple of staff members that go off to other jobs. And bear in mind, if you got a ra- you got horses racing that day, anyone that straps them would have to take off early. Uh, it just yeah, it, it impacted a bit, but it wouldn't be enormous. It wouldn't stop me training horses. But uh, I just think early in the morning you get them, get to them, and uh, they're on an empty stomach. And uh, yeah, it, it's just a better time. It always has been. <laughs> Yeah, and look, it's it's a tough game, horse racing, as we know. It's you know physically demanding. The hours are long. I mean, burnout has been a factor, and you know Chris Waller and Claire Lindop have both said that. You know, you're putting your heads in the sand if you don't think burnout's a factor in the industry. I mean, do you think these really early starts help contribute to some burnout, and and maybe pushing it back a little bit might might help solve that problem to a degree? Well, look at May. Um, I think I think you, they're probably they're they're, they're working on the uh, interstate um, where they uh, uh, where they race nearly every day of the week. Here in South Australia, we're two or three days a week tops, and there's not much pressure put on people through the week. But in uh, I must admit, in uh, Victoria and New South Wales, a lot more race meetings, so that would be a factor, and night meetings as well. So I could see that, but. Yeah, you know, it just um, it's a special person that works in the stable who doesn't mind getting up at them hours. That's why he takes the job. So, um, you know, I just don't see it being an issue. But, however, it must be. No, I think that's a good point you make. I mean, every state is different, and clearly, uh, the you know the bit less racing in South Australia compared to to Sydney and Melbourne uh, would be a factor. So, just give us a give us an idea of the size of of, of your staff and. And, you know, how many people are at the stables in the morning for track work? Okay, I've got uh, an apprentice um, and uh, we're looking at um, plus four ground staff and I've got an extra guy comes in and rides half a dozen a morning track work. So that's about it. And most of them, they start staggered at two. A couple of them will start at half past three and a couple more at four o'clock. And by half past four, everyone's on board and... Uh, over the track, and and I think I haven't heard any problems that they they're not happy about finishing, they're starting early and, and finishing early and having the rest of the day to themselves until the afternoon. Yeah, and and just finally before we let you go, we've seen obviously there's still some COVID problems in Sydney and Melbourne, and it's caused a bit of a problem for the for the carnival up there with the Magic Millions and certain jockeys. Uh, you know, Kieran McAvoy for one has decided uh, not to attend. Uh, in terms of your stable, th- these continuing. Uh, problems uh, around the country. Is it, is it affecting anything you do? Nothing at the moment, but when the Autumn Carnival kicks off in uh, in Melbourne in February, or end of January, uh, it might start affecting me then. Although we had it pretty well under control through the spring, I have got a, a mate over there in Melbourne that would uh, receive the horses when I send them over and saddle them up and, and do all the groundwork over there. So it, it worked out beautiful I didn't have to go he he did all the work and uh, it may have to be the same situation again in the autumn uh, hopefully not you know you'd like to see owners be able to 
get to the races. Um, that's why they buy horses, to mm. see them race and be involved. And uh, if they can't be involved, they get a bit cheesed off. Yeah, it's a good point you make. How, how's it been dealing with your owners, you know, this year? You're, you're right, everyone that has a share in a racehorse, the, the most exciting thing is being there on the day and, and watching it go and go around the track and, and hopefully winning. But how's that been, some of those conversations you would have had to have with owners this year or late last year? Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's been hard. Um, uh, even racing here at Morfordville when they, and they couldn't go down to the track. They've just started to get them back now, albeit in a uh, sort of a different different way they have to register to go and stay in a certain area i think they're relaxing that a lot more these days i went to the races at gawler on saturday and everyone was mingling pretty well and it's just like a normal race meeting so we're virtually back to that here in south australia but um through the spring uh, uh, we were lucky enough to be racing up in sydney where uh, owners could at least go to the races uh, only it was a restricted amount but they could fly up and and go to the races, whereas racing in Melbourne, they couldn't go to the races. So it worked out reasonable for them. But, you know, like I said before, they, they go in to be involved with their horse, go to the races and, and just do all the things, and, and that's that's their kick. So taking that away from them just, just gets them a bit sick of the industry, you know. So yeah. far, they've been okay, but it wouldn't take much if it just went on for too long that, that said, well, this isn't the sport for me, you know? Yeah, completely understandable. Well, let's hope uh, 2021 is a little bit uh, smoother than 2020 for everyone in uh, every sport. Uh, Gordon, thanks for jumping on the line and uh, getting yours, giving, uh, giving us your perspective on all this talk about track work and what time it should be start. Uh, best of luck uh, for 2021. No worries, buddy. Thanks very much. Great to have Gordon Richards on the line, leading trainer over in South Australia, talking about this issue of track work. Got an interesting one here off the temper text machine saying, uh, well, don't worry about the horses. No one gives two hoots about the poor old bakers and pastry cooks have already done a couple of hours before the horses even move, uh, says Brian. So, yeah, that's a good point. We're not saying that uh, horse racing uh, is the only industry where people start at, uh, well, I was going to say the crack of dawn, but it's even earlier uh, than the crack of dawn, and uh, Baker's are certainly included in that. Uh, just keeping across the NFL scores, uh, I know a lot of keen NFL fans out there, uh, the big game right now is between Washington and the Philadelphia Eagles. Washington need to win to clinch their wild card spot. They lead 17 14 uh, late in the third term. Now, they lose. Uh, the New York Giants uh, will be in. Now, the, the format or the schedule for the Super Wildcard weekend has come out. Uh, on Saturday, will be the Colts at Buffalo, the Rams at Seattle, and Tampa Bay with Tom Brady head to either Washington or the New York Giants, depending on the result uh, in that match. On Sunday, it's the Ravens at the Titans, the Bears at the Saints, and the Cleveland Browns, who uh, finally... Uh, Broke their playoff drought through to the first time in 2002. They'll play the Steelers, uh, who they beat this morning, 24-22, to clinch their spot uh, in the playoffs. So uh, plenty happening still uh, in the NFL, and uh, there's still one spot to be decided in terms of the wild cards. We'll keep you across that between now and 3 o'clock on the end of the show. But let's quickly check in with the newsroom and Sammy Fantasia. Lovely work, Sammy. Sammy Fantasia in our newsroom. We mentioned the Test Cricket. We're all getting pretty excited for Australia and India on Thursday. Just reiterating that news, if you're just joining us, capacity crowd now being cut from, hopefully it was going to be 50% now, down to 25% initially. So no more than 12,000 will be permitted at the SCG on Thursday. Now, that could be even less 
uh, depending on the weather. So uh, that's a story that continues to evolve. There is another test match going on around the world at the moment. It's in New Zealand between New Zealand and Pakistan. Of course, New Zealand now the number one test rated team after their win uh, in the first test. Uh, Pakistan were all out for 297 in the first innings. Uh, New Zealand going along quite nicely. They're currently three for 172. Kane Williamson, the skipper and the new number one batsman, according to the ICC rankings uh, at the moment, he's uh, just brought up his 50. He's 50 not out. Uh, Henry Nichols has joined him. He's 41 not out. Earlier, Latham gone for 33. Blundell, 16. And Ross Taylor uh, out for 12. We're also keeping an eye on Steph Curry, who is uh, he's back to his best. Uh, the Warriors currently lead 104 to 90 against the Portland Trailblazers. We've got nine minutes left, and Steph Curry's already thrown up 45 points. So looks right on track to break the 50-point barrier. Uh, Steph Curry, the Warriors currently two and three against the Trailblazers, three and two. And just keeping an eye on that NFL score, uh, just starting the final term in a must-win match for Washington. Uh, they need to win to earn a wild card spot. If they don't win, uh, the Giants will go in. Uh, they currently lead 17-14 against the Philadelphia Eagles. So uh, it's going to be a big finish there. Uh, in that NFL game, the last weekend of the regular season before a big wild card weekend uh, next weekend over there in the United States. So just returning to a bit of cricket and still a lot of debate around uh, this Australian team, what's going to happen. It appears like David Warner is going to play, even though even by his own admission, uh, he's not 100% fit. So who will join him at the top of the order? We heard Robert Craddock earlier on the show today say we might even know by the end of today uh, whether Will Pekoski will be available to play in terms of uh, ticking off all the concussion protocols. We know he had a big net session yesterday. And Pete Lawler, uh, part of the SEN cricket team and also the Australian uh, cricket writer, joined the boys on breakfast. And uh, he was watching uh, Will Pekoski yesterday. This is what uh, his thoughts were on the young Victorian. Yesterday, I snuck down to the nets and watched him face the spinners in one net in a roughed-up section. Then they flipped him over and they had the um, net bowlers, the quicks, going at him. Throwing a few at his head, he looked fine. Didn't flinch, you know. Hooked a couple off the badge, ducked a couple, weaved a couple. Um, he looks like to the naked eye, he looks fine. I think he's got another independent test. It might be a neurological one today, but he keeps ticking the boxes. So um, if nothing goes wrong, and that's a pretty relevant if mm. where Will's concerned, um, I'd expect to see him open the batting in Sydney. So that was Pete Lawler's view this morning on SEN Breakfast. Let's hope he's right. And not just from a Victorian point of view, but I think it's a bit like Cameron Green. I think all of Australia is really excited to see Will Pekoski at the top level. And the form that he was showing uh, in the early part of the Shield season was absolutely unbelievable. And uh, let's hope he does get the all clear. And then, it, of course, it is up to the selectors to pick him. So that might be solving one of the... Uh, problems in terms of uh, the openers. The other one is David Warner. So he's coming back uh, from this groin injury. It does sound like it's touch and go, and, and particularly in terms of him being uh, 100% fit. Uh, the batting is okay, but it's in terms of what he's been saying probably for the last uh, four or five days is uh, straight right line running is okay. It's the change of direction, whether it's batting or in the field that is presenting uh, the real problems. This was David Warner talking about uh, his fitness. I, I know I can manage... The, the running between wickets. I know I can manage the, the, the shot making that I have. Uh, it's whether or not that I, I'm able to have that capacity of catching the balls left and right of myself. And even with, with Gazza bowling, am I going to field at first slip or leg slip? 
I've got to, I've got to be, um, you know, agile enough to make sure I'm taking those chances because if I'm not, uh, given the, the 50% of the time we're out in the field, uh, I don't want to be, you know, dropping those chances and, and not giving our team the best chance of taking them. So I think that's what it'll come down to. So that was David Ward. He's been pretty honest about his uh, fitness, but it does seem like the feeling is he will play uh, in the third test, uh, barring no setbacks uh, in the nets the next couple. And obviously fielding practice is a big part of that as well in the next couple of days. Now, the other part of this uh, intriguing story around this test has been the last 24, 36 hours, and particularly these rumblings coming out of the Indian camp. And Crick Buzz has been all over this story. And, and their update today uh, was around the fact that uh, both the uh, Indian players and support staff and also the Cricket Australia players staff and match officials all underwent COVID tests yesterday. Everyone came back negative, uh, which is fantastic news. But the, the story off the back of this is that the reports from this uh, source in the Indian camp and the, and the story on Crick Buzz is the fact that because of this, they believe there's no need, the Indians, this is the story coming out of the Indian camp, is they don't believe they need to be in quarantine. They, they, should, they believe they should just be following uh, the rules that the rest of the Australians are following at the moment in terms of masks and social distancing and so forth. And uh, so therefore, there still does seem to be this reluctance or this discontent in the Indian camp about having to quarantine uh, for these next uh, couple of test matches. So... Haven't heard much out of the Australian camp in terms of uh, having any problem with this. And uh, Matthew Wade was asked about whether there is any apprehension in the Australian camp. I, I, I'm sure there is for some players. There's no difference to people coming home internationally and having to do hard quarantine. It's you know it's not an ideal situation. We'd much prefer, as I said, to be doing um, you know being out in the community and doing what we want, like a lot of people in Australia at the moment would like to do. But there's not much we can do about it. There, that's going to be, if that's what the government are going to make us do to play a game at, at the Gabba, then we're willing to sacrifice that. Um, yeah, I can't say much more. I, I said them, I said before, you know, I knew coming into it, a lot of the players knew coming into it, it wasn't going to be an ideal situation. And if something went south, then we were going to have to do, make some more sacrifices along the way. So as a group, we understand that. Um, we're ready for the challenge and we're just keen to, Sydney get started and then roll into Brisbane, whatever that looks like. Yeah, players from both teams on their way to Sydney. That was the voice of Matthew Wade. So Cricket Australia are about to uh, address the media about these new restrictions uh, for the test at the SCG. Just reading a report from Heidi Murphy here off Twitter saying, masks will be strongly encouraged and will be handed out on entry to the SCG for the third test. Strongly encouraged doesn't sound like compulsory. You'd think they would be compulsory uh, in the current environment, but uh, that's another part of this story that will develop uh, in the next 48 hours or so. So we'll go to a break. We're going to speak after the break. We're going to speak to one of the young rising stars of Australian basketball, 18-year-old Josh Giddy. Uh, most believe he's got an NBA career in front of him, but before that, he's about to start on his professional journey in the NBL uh, with the Adelaide 36ers. We'll speak to Josh after the break on SEN Afternoons. Welcome back to Afternoons. Julian DeStoop with you. Just about done for another show. We're going to speak to Josh Giddy uh, very shortly, one of the rising stars of Australian basketball. Keeping an eye on Steph Curry, and he's done it. He's shot 50 points. Uh, we've still got a few minutes to go uh, in the game between the Warriors and also the Trailblazers. It's the seventh time in his career uh, Steph Curry has shot more than 50 points. Now, just before we get to Josh, uh, there's a lot of rumours going around on the weekend about uh, Damien Hardwick, and we've had a lot of 
people on the text machine asking about it. Now, just seen in the Herald Sun a story filed by Jackie Epstein, who's written, Richmond Premiership coach Damien Hartwig's new relationship with a younger staff member is causing growing tensions within the club. It's understood senior figures have raised concerned about the relationship after it was confirmed last month that Hardwick had split from wife Danielle, with whom he shares three children. Hardwick has been seen with his new partner, a member of the Tigers' commercial sales team, on holiday in Queensland and around Melbourne recently. It's believed the relationship has rocked staff within the club and could affect the playing group. So that's what Jackie Epstein's writing in the Herald Sun. That story has just gone up on the Herald Sun website. So... uh, Certainly, look, there was a lot of rumours going around on the weekend. We don't need to address rumours, but that is a story uh, in the Herald Sun right now. But uh, the NBL season is not too far away, and one man that everyone is excited to watch as he embarks his professional career is Josh Giddy, who will line up for the Adelaide 36ers this season. And Josh has been good enough to join us on the line. Now, Josh, thanks for your time, and Happy New Year. No worries, guys. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year to you too. Pleasure. Now, what was what was New Year? What was... Uh, what did you do for New Year's, uh, given uh, the season's not too far away? I'm, I'm sure it wasn't an overly uh, big night for you. No, it wasn't, actually. It was pretty quiet for me. Um, I'm living on Glenelg Beach, so there was some fireworks and stuff down here. But, I mean, other than that, it was pretty um, pretty quiet. A really exciting uh, time for you, embarking, as, you, as we say, on your first professional season. You're playing uh, with the Adelaide 36ers. What's it been like so far being in a professional environment? Uh, what, what have you learned so far, even though we, we haven't started the NBL season just yet? Yeah, no, it's been awesome. Obviously, as a young kid coming into a um, professional environment, it's it's hard at the start. I mean, you've got to adjust to, you know, being the rookie again. You've got to work your way up from the bottom. You've got all the big dogs that have been here and, and been around for a long time. So I think that's the hardest thing. But, um, you know, I've been here for a few months now and, and it's getting easier. I'm, I'm, I'm adjusting. I'm getting used to everything. So um, I think the hardest thing is just, I think it's just that, realising that, you know, you're coming in fresh. You're a rookie, you know. You've got, um, you've got a lot of players around you that, are, that have been there for a long time. So I think um, that's been the big thing for me. But as I said, it's gotten easier and um, I think we're, we're going really well as a team. You mentioned the big dogs there. What, what have they been like? Have they been uh, welcoming to a, a new kid in town or have they, they, they tested you a couple of times? No, definitely welcoming. I mean, um, Dan Dillon, actually, he's one of the older dudes on the team. He's actually been driving me around a fair bit because I don't have my license yet. So he's been one of the dudes that's been helping out a fair bit. But um, uh, DJ and TZ, obviously, been in league for a long time. So they've been helping me out a lot. Um, so, no, it's a really good group of guys. We've got a good mix of um, older and younger dudes. You've got your whole team finally together, and that's been a challenge, I guess, for all NBL clubs and professional sporting clubs this year with COVID, particularly in the NBL where we're, you know, we've got imports coming in. Tell us about a couple of your imports in Donald Sloan and Tony Crocker. Yep. Um, so Donald is a point guard. He's, he obviously played in the NBA for a long time. He's been around the world, and he is a great guy. He's, um, he got out of quarantine, I think, maybe a few days ago, so he's been practicing with us now um, for a little bit. But, um, no, he, he's awesome. He's an absolute star. He's a great guy to play with, a, a great guy off the court, and um, I couldn't be higher on him. And uh, Tony got out of quarantine, and t- we met. We all met him today. He was, he was at practice, and he didn't train with us, but he worked down the other court. And from what I've seen on video, from what I saw today, he's going to be a um, a really good player in this league. Yeah, it's exciting times uh, for the league, as we know. It's been building and building and building. For you, having watched the league uh, the last couple of years, now that you're involved and you're, you're training uh, in this environment, what's been your impression watching on the league uh, the last couple of years now that you're involved? Has it, has it changed your thoughts? What, what have you made of, I guess, the quality of, of practice and, and what you'll expect on the court to come the start of the season in a couple of weeks' time? 
Yeah, no, it um, it's pretty similar to what I thought about. I mean, obviously as a kid, because even last year, um, I was running around at Melbourne United games when I was living back home, and I was always there watching them play, watching Phoenix play. So um, it's pretty cool to to be to be actually out there on the floor now and playing in those games instead of sitting in the grandstand. So I think that's a pretty cool thing. But I think yeah, it's pretty much what I expected. I mean, I know I knew what to expect coming in. I, I'd talked to a lot of people. I'd gotten a lot of advice and a lot of heads up on what to expect. And it's you know it, it is what I expected. It's just weights, practice. And it's, it's a lot of self-driven stuff. So the coaches aren't going to be on you about, you know, getting in extra work and, and doing this and doing that. It's a lot of self-driven and self-motivational stuff that it's kind of you've got to be on top of and um, take care of it yourself. We're speaking to rising Australian basketball star Josh Giddy, who's about to start his first season in the NBL uh, with the Adelaide 36ers. You mentioned uh, weights there and uh, putting on some size. I know that's been a, a major focus for you. Um, ha- how's that been going? How much weight have you put on? And I guess how much more would you like to put on in the short term? Yeah, no, it was a big um, point of emphasis for me. Obviously, I was really skinny, and it was a big issue. Oh, not a big issue, but it was a, it was an issue that I needed to, to needed to address, and I did. I mean, when I was back home in the off season, working out, and I think I put on about ten kilos. So I think that was a big big point for me. And um, you know, I don't I don't want to stop here where I'm at, and um, just be satisfied kind of thing. I mean, I'm I'm still looking to put on a bit more size, and um, just get stronger because I mean, obviously playing against grown men, you're going to have to be um stronger and ready for it. And your dad, I mean, I'm showing my age here, but I remember going watching your dad play for the Melbourne Tigers at the old glass house with, with yeah. Andrew Gaze and Dave Colbert and Dave Simmons and then later Leonard Copeland. Um, what, I'm sure he's had a massive influence on your career, but what sort of advice does he give you before starting your first NBL season? And look, you play the Kings January 17 over yeah. in Adelaide. Is, is the family going to be making their way over, I guess, if they can? Yes, the family will be coming over. I think some um, other friends will. But, yeah, no, the family definitely will be here. Um, yeah, as you said, Dad has obviously been around a long time. He played, I think, over 400 games in the NBL. So he's been around, and um, he, he's helped me uh, more than I can even say. Right from when I was a little boy playing to, to where I am now, he's been a, a massive part of it. And, um, you know, the advice he just gave me is just to, to play my game. You know, I don't have to change anything. I've gotten this far for being who I am and playing the way I do. So I think he said, don't try and change anything to, to, to do what people want to see. Just play a normal game and um, the rest will take care of itself. And just finally, Josh, before we let you go, I know your focus is on the Adelaide 36ers and, and doing your best for the team. But I guess how aware are you of all this talk about NBA and scouts will be watching and there's already mock drafts done by ESPN with your name in it. How sort of aware of you uh, of all that talk are you or is it something that you just pretty easily um, shut out of your mind? Well, I mean, I tell this to everyone. I am on social media like every teenage kid is, and, and I see it all because it's all posted. It's all over Twitter, Instagram, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I do see it, and I, you know, it's it's what I'm aiming towards the, the 2021 draft. But um, I try not to let it influence how I play when I'm here because I'm just here to, to win and, and do my part to help our team be as successful as we can. So I try not to buy into the, to the hype and that kind of stuff too much. But, um, no, I do see it, and I do acknowledge it. Uh, Josh, I can hear the excitement in your voice, how excited you are to uh, get the NBL season uh, underway. Not too long now. A couple of uh, practice matches against Cairns for Adelaide this week before getting underway uh, against the Sydney Kings on January 17. Uh, Good luck. We all can't wait to see how you go uh, in your first season in the NBL. And I'm sure we'll touch base again uh, once the season gets underway. Uh, Good luck for the start of the season. Awesome. Thanks, Chief. Thanks for having me. Great to have uh, Josh Giddy on the line. Uh, very, very exciting talent. Been likened to Ben Simmons, uh, 201 centimetre point guard. That's right, 201 centimetre point guard. So uh, he's an exciting player in Australian basketball. So great to have Josh on the line. We'll be back to wrap up 
on SEN Afternoons after the break. Welcome back to Afternoons. Julian DeStoop with you. Just about done for the day. But just furthermore to this story from Jackie Epstein in the Herald Sun about uh, her report that there's concerns at Richmond over the relationship between Damien Harwick and a staff member. Uh, In fairness to the Tigers, they have given a quote to Jackie. They've said, The club is aware that coach Damien Harwick is currently in a relationship with a member of the club's administration staff. The club has no concerns with this under club policy. Beyond this, it's a private matter and we ask that privacy be respected. So that's the official word uh, out of Richmond. Just about done on SEN Afternoons. Thanks for your company uh, today. Coming up, there's plenty of BBL action. Uh, We'll hand over to the boys at Big Bash Nation. First of all, it's a big game between the Stars and the Hurricanes. More Big Bash uh, tonight and uh, the next 24 hours. All the build-up. Uh, to the Sydney Test. Uh, there's so much going on. If you just joined us or you didn't hear the show today, capacity for the Sydney Test has been cut from what they hoped would be 50%, now down to 25%. And it could be even less uh, if there is rain around. So we'll follow that the next couple of days. Uh, enjoy the Big Bash coming up on Big Bash Nation. We'll chat again tomorrow at 12pm. This is Julian DeStoop on SEN Afternoons. We'll chat tomorrow. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.